Come on and join me on the B-side When movie stars that weren't in their prime Made other movies that got left behind That got them covered on the B-side You're gonna like it on the B-side Cause you got Danny Connor by your side Throwing your knowledge from the inside And now you're listening to the B-side Hello, everybody. Welcome to the B-Side for the film stage. As you know, we cover movie stars, movie directors, and sometimes in, its, in the most exciting versions, kind of movie, other people in the movie, dumb movie, the, the crew world. And mm. we talk about uh, not necessarily the movies that made them famous or kept them famous or they're known for, but the other ones they made in between, right? And today we're kind of going to do something a little bit different. We did this recently with with Randall uh, Poster, who's obviously a great music supervisor, and we've been talking to people like Carl Franklin, as you know, and Wayne Wang. And so today we're going to talk about a great editor with a great editor. And I'm really excited about this because we I don't think we've ever really done this, right, Connor? No, we've never... no. I mean, we've had like, work you know professionals on the podcast before because god knows but like we've god never had we like are carl not, franklin but... didn't talk about like right Peter somebody else yes. yeah, 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 yeah. yeah yeah right um and so the editor our subject is is the great sam osteen and even if you don't know what he's edited you've definitely seen stuff he's edited and we will get into it and to talk about sam osteen with us is the great Darren Navarro, who you might know from film Twitter land, but more specifically is a great editor of more uh, very recently as we speak. Um, William Freakin's last feature film, uh, Darren edited the Kane Mutiny Court Martial. Darren, thanks for being here. Really appreciate hey, it. Thanks for having me. So, before, so let me just say the four movies because what a encounter you're saying this before you press record. What an eclectic career. So Sam Osteen, he edited The Graduate, right? He edited Chinatown. So just to right. start, Ro we're not going to... Rosemary's gonna, Baby. Right. Like, like Those are A-sides, of course, and we can talk a little bit about those. But, I mean, this is a guy who, I, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, if not his first, one of his first movie, movies he assisted in editorially was The Wrong Man. Right, Reno, which is, mm. you know, one of Alfred. I think was Alfred Hitchcock's favorite of his movies. Is that right? I feel like I've he said heard, that once. I've always heard it told that Shadow of a Doubt was okay. His maybe favorite this, of his I, movies, but I always, I, I always remember <clears throat> that The Wrong Man's like one of those movies that I don't think is necessarily regarded in the world as like one of the go tos. But I one feel of like... the things I think is interesting about that fact, though, is, you know, he also has a, a background in documentary and the mm. and the wrong man right the whole, true crime. and yeah. the whole uh, like the th whole thing hitchcock was trying to do with that movie was kind of make it a little bit more ha like give it a little bit more of like a documentary like yeah, this has feel yeah. yeah and so really a a legend of the craft i mean certainly in every way and so the movies that we're going to kind of focus on and you know we'll use them, use them as jumping off points as always is um in chronological order, 1973's The Day of the Dolphin, uh, 1978's Straight Time, 1987's Nadine, and then right immediately after, uh, two years later, uh, 1989's A Dry White Season, uh, all edited uh, or co-edited uh, uh, by Sam Osteen. So, Darren, just before we jump into that stuff, I mean... You've worked on a lot of really good movies. Um, one that we were talking about, you made a, a lovely, you edited a lovely movie 
from a few years back called Colwell, which I would just recommend people try to f- like. Find. I think it was on. Show- I watched it on Showtime. It's it's yeah. Karen Allen. It's such a l- lovely movie. Um, you know stuff like Terry from a few years back, right? I mean, and you've worked with you worked with Friedkin for a long time. What was mm-hmm. that? I guess like I don't want to. You know, I you've answered a million questions about it, but I guess some highlights from you know, kind of working with him in general and, and then this last kind of really great final yeah. film of his. Um, so I edited, uh, I, well, I, uh, back to the beginning, like I had been an assistant editor on right. uh, most of the movies that he did, really all of the movies that he did after, from Blue Chips forward. So, oh, you know, his, his, yeah. his years at Paramount, plus during that period of time, we also did a, um, uh, a remake of 12 Angry Men for Showtime. Great TV movie, yeah. yeah. Great. Yeah, it was really good. Um, and, you know, kind of a uh, stuck to the script, but then st- he still managed to have a, well, a, with, a very uh, different take yeah, with George G- C. Scott. Uh, George C. Scott. D- George Dolphin Scott, who we're going to talk George about again Scott. a little yeah. bit later. Yeah. <laughs> um, and um, and we did the, the you know, the, the re-release of The Exorcist. Right. You know, F- into, the fame, I mean, the famous that. re-release. I mean, that was a very lauded... It was a big deal. A big deal thing. I think yeah. that was Warner Brothers' highest grossing film that year, was their re-release wow. of The Exorcist. What was the year? Do you, I, I can it was look 2000. It yeah. I we, remember, I, I would have been young, and I so vividly remember the advertising for it. Like, I remember right. being, you know, how old I was. And being like, oh, yeah. here we go. I, yeah. don't, I must have not seen it at that point, but... Um, yeah, and I mean, I there's so much. Trying to release it again. I mean, this is the 50th anniversary of right. the original Crazy. release of The Exorcist, and my understanding is that they were planning on uh, doing a re-release. I don't. I mean, we're getting close to the end of the year. It did come out in Christmas originally, so that's um, right. You'd think that we would be seeing um, some marketing for it now if they were going to do it. I saw it again at um, at Venice Film Festival earlier earlier this year, so I thought there was a, a release in the offing, but I could have been wrong. And then anyway. Venice was where Kane went, right? You were yeah, there we with yeah, we right, right, right there, right, yeah. yeah. Um, and then uh, anyway, so I did I did those work. Uh, I did that work with um, with with Mr. Friedkin. Uh, Augie Hess was his editor at the time, right. and. Um, uh, when the whole Paramount paradigm shifted and, and Sherry Lansing was no longer there, and then Billy was no longer there. And so he kind of rethought the way his career was going at that point and um, decided to do something smaller. And he had been very excited by this off-Broadway play that he had seen called Bug. Mm. Um, and so he um, acquired the rights and took it to Lionsgate and did a much smaller film than he had done in years. And Augie wasn't super interested in doing a smaller movie. He had a really well-paying job on a TV show at that time. And so um, Billy came to me. He and I had developed you know, um, a rapport over the years that I had been working on his films. And um, he, um, he gave me a shot. So I took it. <laughs> and um, so I did Bug. And then we did Killer Joe a few years later, which was another play by Tracy Letts. And then... Um, a good long time went by he, when he when he did the father, excuse me, the devil and Father Abmorth, Um, I wasn't available. He came to me, you know, and, and said, "Hey, you know, I'm doing this thing. Right. It's about an exorcism," and uh, and I was like, "I, you know, I'd love to work with you again." And and um, uh, but I'm I'm busy on this this project for the next five months, and he really wanted to get it going quickly, and and uh, so it, it just it didn't work out. And, uh, Augie had always told me anecdotally, he goes, you know, you only get to say no to Billy once. 
right. <laughs> and then that's it. And I don't think that that's been 100% true in his career, but it, it that there was a pattern of people not being available or turning him down and then him sure. just moving on and going. So I figured that was it. You know, I said, well, that was my no. And then right. um, it was about uh, a little over a year ago that I got a call from um, the, uh, the, the, the mixer that we had worked with, the post-production mixer that we had worked with since Bug. Uh, and he said, "Hey, did you?" And he's can, he's continued to work with Billy on all of right. his re-releases and things like that. So he's he was in more frequent touch with Billy than I was. And um, he said, "Did you know Billy's making another movie?" And I said, "I did not." <laughs> um, and uh, so I had my reps look into it. And um, when uh, they got in touch with the producers, and when the producers went to Billy and said, "Hey, you know, Darren Navarro's available," he said, "Hire him." So That's nice. it worked out to do one more, which That's was really great. great. I, I, you know, if you would ask me 15 months ago whether that was a possibility, I would. I don't think he's making right. any more reason. I don't think if he is, I'm going to be involved with them, and it, it all worked out really. Yeah, because the doc was a few years back, and it kind of yeah. came and went. It wasn't a right. It was you know it played the circuits, but it, it didn't get a huge release, as I recall, and like. I think there was some thought of, you know, obviously there was some awareness of his health generally wasn't amazing. And I think. I think if you've been to any of his Q&As yeah. in the last few years, and he loved to do them. And mm. in fact, I had gone to one last year. Uh, he did one for cruising here at the um, at the Arrow Theater in Santa Monica. And, you know, the Q&A went longer than the film. <laughs> yeah. He loved doing yeah. it. He loved interacting with his, with his audiences. But if you had been to any of them, you would have seen a man who. Was was clearly not in the kind of health that we saw even you know eight ten years ago. Um, yeah, so. and he. But what's so great about him, and obviously this is well worn territory, but you know there's so much honesty and um, earnestness, which is the same means the same thing. But you know he, he's one of the, I think what's aside from him, him, him making a filmmaker who's made you know uh, you know a handful of full on masterpieces, and then a lot of like you. I mean, I would argue you know for stuff like the hunted being re re right there you yeah, know like yeah. really incredible and yeah. you worked on that right i mean like yeah. incredible like we talked about the hunted with uh, did, our buddy yeah. chad yeah. who's a filmmaker in his own right chad harbald and we were just marveling not to go on the hunt but like marveling at just the economy of the hunted just like you know just you know 89 minutes you know um the portland locations the i mean the editing just the the you know the living on masters, which I think I, you know, we can, we can, we can get off freaking in a second. And I think it's a good transition of, of rewatching the Kane mutiny court martial, which is obviously an adaptation of the Herman woke famous play, which in Herman itself Wolf wrote a novel first, the Kane mutiny. Okay. And shortly thereafter, um, produced a play, the Kane mutiny court martial, which is just the court martial section of the novel turned into something for the stage. So he did both works and he did them within a very short period of time. Oh, wow. I did not Late know 40s. that. So, yeah. so, so the Kane mutiny, the, so the, the movie, the Bogart the movie is movie based on the novel, is based which on the represents novel. all of the, the events on the ship, right? That and, all of that. And, and, the, and the court martial itself is really just like right. the better part of the last act. Right. Yeah. And yeah. then, and then, but the, but the play was not turned into a movie until 1988 when, right. Robert Altman did it also mm -hmm. as a, a kind of as a TV movie um, with a mostly terrific cast, um, and I think he did a really, really, really terrific version of it. Um, but the the play and the novel are in fact separate works on the same topic by the same author, 
um, but they take a different approach to it. And 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 the thing that's interesting about the play to me um, is that it play is that it's it's it is more in keeping with the kinds of stories that Friedkin wanted to tell everywhere, you know, throughout his career because it doesn't. You don't know what happened on the ship. You have to. You you can only glean it through the testimony of these witnesses. Yeah, and you know some of whom were there, and some of whom were not even present for the events themselves. There are the doctors who examined Quig after the fact yeah. and came to some determination as to his his mental fitness. Um, you know, without actually having been there. Um, and so you, the audience member, are. Uh, it's left up to your devices to determine. Right. How, who you believe and who you don't, how much of the truth is being told, how much of this was correctly interpreted by the people who were there. And um, whereas with with the movie anyway, and I'm not sure how the, I haven't read the novel, so I don't know how the novel plays, but with the movie, you're left with little doubt that Queen was out of his mind and needed to be replaced. Right, the Dimitri yeah. movie, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, exactly. I think it, But it, I think the play leaves it, it, does, it d- does not make it quite so clear. And right. um and 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 it's up to you to sort of wonder really, but even by the end whether or not uh, Merrick did the right thing by by relieving his captain. It's totally right. Yeah the the movie from '54, it's far more clear cut, and even the Bogart performance is very like you know I mean he's he's, re- he's fully from minute two. You're kind of yeah. like all right. Where, whereas I would argue the the Kiefer, Kiefer plays Kiefer Sutherland plays Queeg in um, this this recent adaptation of of the play, um, and I, is it his the best performance he's ever it's given? Certainly, I mean, he's it's a really so incredible performance. Rewatching it, yeah. even like his the like the like crease in his the left side of his coming off his mouth, right? Yeah. Like which yeah. I don't know if that's just a natural. Kiefer has that or if that's a makeup I mean that alone you're watching that and the way the movie's shot and the way it's edited it's doing wonders you're like what's going yeah. on with this guy that thing on the left side I'm trying there, there, I'm, there's a level of, tales of it. you know like you watch it and you're kind of like yeah I don't know this guy's kind of an oddball but he might not be crazy like, like, yeah, comes like, to mind right, like, certainly yeah, yeah like you know there's something ex- eccentric about him maybe but he might not be crazy right or anything right. like that and yeah it really is and I I gotta say and I had said this to Dan when I was watching the movie when it hit streaming and so I I promise I'm not blowing smoke but like <laughs> I had texted Dan and I was like this really is like impossibly well edited because the <laughs> the, the the juggle that you're doing i mean obviously it's a you know it's a chamber movie right it's a courtroom drama so you can only do so much right you can only cut to so many things in so many places but um but to to maintain the level of you know unsure that sort of oscillates throughout the movie is almost entirely made up of editing choices, right? Like who you choose to, like when you choose to cut to a reaction shot, whose reaction shot at it, like you just even little things like that. I was, so it felt so tight and so well calibrated to me. And so I just, I did want to, before we move off of it, I did just want to ask like a process question was like, was freaking really prescriptive about that kind of stuff or was it more of a like is was your process with him more well it, you this take one, a, this you one take went differently it, than it usually or, does yeah uh, or usually <clears throat> did um so <laughs> uh 
Friedkin, with with regard to editing, Friedkin was for most of the time, certainly all the time that I worked with him, and probably going back significantly further than when I started working with him, um, was very prescriptive okay. with, with editing. He yeah. he really would. He always said that he wouldn't make a movie until he had seen the movie in his head. Right. Um, and he really means it. Like he had an incredibly. I mean, he had. He claimed to have an eidetic memory, and when he, when you didn't have conversations with him, and the level of detail that he remembers from thirty year old you know conversations is was mind blowing. Um, so uh, I take him at his word when he says he literally has seen every cut and every mm. shot of a film before he even begins to shoot it, and he would come into the cutting room with detailed notes about what he shot and how he intended to use it in the cut. Um, he was very. Um, thorough that mm. way and um so he you know with augie prior to me and with me uh for for bug and killer joe um and presumably with editors you know going back even before that um he really expected us to do a cut um but when he came into the cutting room especially once digital editing became you know uh the de facto way to cut movies yeah. um he really just wanted to start with the footage and didn't really care to spend too much time looking at an editor's cut at all. Interesting. Um, and that was just, that was, you know, it, it, it can be a little bit deflating knowing that you're going to do this sure. work that the director will never even take a look at. But, you know, for the opportunity to work with someone like Friedkin, um, which is above all else, you know, the most wonderful learning experience you're ever going to be offered, um, you do it, right? Mm -hmm. sure. um, and we started to work that way on... Um, Kane Mutiny Court Martial. Uh, but <laughs> there was one scene, and I've told this story now on, on at least in a couple of interviews, so I'm not going to like repeat it in detail, but um, there was one scene that we had some with some trouble with, and he knew it because I had asked him to reshoot part of it. And he considered it, and we even brought the actor back to reshoot part of it, but he was like, no, I like this performance. I know it's a great performance, but we have other problems. There are technical problems, and, and we should probably reshoot it. And he goes, no, I don't want to reshoot it. So... <laughs> So we didn't. And um, and so when we got to that scene, which is pretty early on in the film, I said, you know, you know, we have trouble with this scene because there was so much drama on set with me asking you to reshoot it. So why don't you take a look at my cut in this case? Because I've done the best I can do with it. He goes, OK, let's take a look at it. And we looked at it. And he goes, that was great. You did great. What else do you have? And then he wanted to see the next scene that I cut. And the next thing he'd never done this before mm. you know, all the time. Oh, I see. Well, that's... And we just sat and we watched the rest of my cut. Yeah. And then the next day he called the producer and he said, okay, so when are you going to come in and watch the movie? And she said, Billy, I want to give you your time with it. And he says, we're done. Wow. Wow. So well, I mean, that's, really we I spent mean, look, about three days on the, on the, uh, on the director's cut. Wow. In this um, wow. And, um, and he basically, for the most part, barring about the first 17, 18 minutes, basically just bought my editor's cut with a few minor changes. What a gift. Wow. It was great. I mean, it was, I mean, it was, it was, it was great. It was terrifying because I didn't know if I had a job anymore, you know, yeah, it was all sure, that part sure. of it. Um, but um, it just got to the, I mean, it, it, certainly one of the things that happened, and I think other uh, department heads on, on the film would uh, attest to this as well. He, you know, his health was waning mm. and, um, he, I think he kind of, he got to, we, you know, it was largely people he had worked with before. He'd worked with the DP before, for sure, um, the casting director. Um, and uh, he got to a point where he was just willing to let people, trust people, you know, and let them do their best work. And um, and I'd worked with him long enough that I, I kind of knew 
how he would cut it, you know, right, if he were right. sitting there. And I knew what he was going to want. And um, and we certainly talked about what he wanted, you know, during the time that, you know, before and during production. So um, it wasn't like I was uh, driving blind. You know, right, I had a lot right. of experience with him and and we'd had a lot of conversations about this particular project. So um, so that all worked well. But he, so he, he was prescriptive until he wasn't. Interesting. And then, you know. Yeah. And I think... Um... And I know it was a quick shoot. And I, I wanted to mention to your point of kind of talking about some of this process elsewhere, you have a great episode uh, on the podcast, Art of the Cut, yeah, um, from, from about a month ago, where you talk a lot about it, about this movie specifically, and a lot of great stuff in there. Um, and um, oh, and I'm reading here just from the interview, you started, started his career with the legendary Roger Corman, and you're just another... Corman, we've been sort talking of. about Corman, so I know, but yeah. it's yeah. just so funny because if you like, Corman, it was on a Roger Corman produced film. Yeah, no, no, right, but it's like Carl Franklin made movies for Corman. We talked yeah. about Corman he for Halloween. Up. Yeah, we he did keeps a Corman up episode. A lot recently. Yeah. I mean, um, which I love. And Corman's having a moment again too. They just did a oh, whole yeah. retrospective at the at the Arrow for him, and I, I yep. wanted to go. I, I and I had other things going on that day, but my girlfriend went and some others, and it would sound like it was a great show anyway yeah his here. movies we talked about what was the movie what's the william shatner movie comedy the intruder about? the intruder from yeah. like the early 60s really interesting movie Good um movie. the what allegedly the only movie he lost money on he said right? yeah Something that's like what that. he, yeah. um <laughs> but anyway so i wanted to just so watching these sam osteen movies and re-watching in some cases and then obviously watching your work re-watching king muni i think it's so interesting one of the things and and obviously with anything i say you know darren obviously you're feel free to tell me like no you are so wrong here but one of the things that i think is so refreshing about the k mutiny court martial and i know that it was a limited time frame for production and it is obviously a you know mostly a single location you know mm -hmm. play right so there's that element to it but the kind of like the living and i guess this is not necessarily true with the k mutiny because you have these cutaways and, and there's a lot going on but i there's so much there's almost there's there's a confidence in the lack of editing in a lot of what Sam Osteen is doing, right? And I think yeah. in a lot of your work you see that too of like knowing when to cut, but also knowing when not to cut. So like even watching the movie, like you're staying on Queeg on Kiefer Sutherland while other people are talking for long stretches, and it's only helping the movie because you're as the viewer, you know living with this face right and you know you know close up medium close up whatever you know and it's like that's a decision that's like i'm not going to make this cut right i'm not going to like lead you you know and i don't know how much coverage you have in any of that but i mean the point is like i one of my laments in general about a lot of movies these days is it feels like a lot of movies get cut to coverage right like yeah and i don't want to i don't want to paint with a broad brush, I, I'm about to, but you know what I mean? Like, do, does that make sense? Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. do you see that in, you know, in general, is it hard? Do you find you've been doing this for a long time? Do you find, I find a need to like, be like, no, I'm not going to make this cut. Right. Or like, I, this is the right. wrong decision to, I, to, uh, a colleague of mine yeah. who started out as, as an assistant editor, um, with uh, Thelma Schoonmaker, yeah. um, and who's, you know, who's now an editor in his own right. Um, uh, he once, uh, I forget exactly how he put it, but it was something like we used to, um, or he says, whereas now um, the directive of the day is to get the coverage, 
you know, there was a time when the directive of the day was to get the shot. Uh, um, yeah. And and there and I and I, this is not universally true. I don't want to be one of those guys who just no, yeah. the way it used to be. There's there are some so many great pieces of work being made now, but you can feel a shift. Um, and 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 you hear particularly from producers that, um, and I think some directors have just kind of gotten in line with this that getting coverage is more important than getting shots. Right. And um, and you, when you can tell the story with a shot, um, then you don't need a cut. And and when yeah. I really started this, I would tell directors this. I would say, listen, I want you to know, as an editor, I'm looking for ways to not cut. I mm. want to. I want to, if the camera is is just if the camera operator is in their cups and if the actor is in his or her cups, then I don't need to cut. You know what I mean? Yeah. There will be a point when a cut is going to be exactly what the movie needs at a specific moment, and that's when I'm going to do it. But until the movie really demands it, then let the actors and the camera do their thing. Um, and one of the reasons why for whatever reason, I'm so uh, enamored of the movies that Sam Mostein has been involved with. He had the good fortune to work with two great directors. He worked with many directors, but the, the two his two primary relationships were with Roman Polanski and Mike Nichols, hmm. who were both terrific with actors and they were terrific with camera. They knew hmm. they knew how to move the camera to avoid editing. And um, and either Sam comes out looking great because of their choices or they come out looking great because of Sam's choices. And the, the truth is, none of us will ever really know because editing sure. is probably um, the most difficult craft to really analyze after the fact. Because sure. we don't know what the decisions were that were made. So much yeah. of what we do is about about taking things away from the screen rather than putting them on the screen. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, however it went... Um, his work, and I think Mike Nichols described his 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 aesthetic as uh, simplicity and rightness, meaning he, he described Sam Osteen's aesthetic that way. Interesting. Simplicity and rightness, and that's always what I'm going for. What are, where is the right place to be? What is the what is the right face to be looking at? What is the right gaze or view to take in this moment and keep it simple? Yeah. No, I mean that's look. I mean that's and look. There's a difference between you know, you know. Ridley Scott making Napoleon and, and using 11 cameras to shoot a battle scene um, because of efficiency and, and production and what have you. But still, you know, being Ridley Scott, being a master of his own craft, you know, working with great craftsmen, like finding great moments, finding great master shots. Right. You know, he but he also has the cup. Right. I mean, like in, yeah. in our digital world, you can do that. I just think to your point often it's just yeah it's it's the other way around and i think that can be unfortunate if you're just kind of never getting the whole story in one shot and i think you know we can use that to segue into the day of the dolphin which is you know it's a mike nichols movie mm -hmm. um it's a buck henry script it's adapted from the um robert merrill novel from uh 1967 so only like six years before based, the movie on, came out based on a true story no, no. <laughs> well based <laughs> what's weird is it's based on um the uh the um oh my gosh guy. what is the name of the doctor now i had it up here yeah. john lilly yeah so john lilly is the doctor in real life who it kind of pivoted from animal research and, and linguistics with with dolphins and whatnot and got in 
really into kind of the uh, Timothy O'Leary LSD of it all, um, you know, which look was of the time. I mean, I think a lot of this project, a lot of this property is really reflective of like <laughs> the late sixties and the early seventies yeah. where it's yeah. like, you know, Merrill was a French guy who, you know, I, I was able to read most of the book. It's kind of a political epic, you know, it's, yeah. it's kind of, it was a big hit. Um, well-reviewed, you know, the Times really like, you know what I mean? Like it was mm -hmm. a hit book, you know, and it was a quick purchase. And I think um, it's a sprawling movie in which the Dolphins ultimately, like, they're not just like, they're speaking in sentences. Like yeah. they're at press conferences. Like they're mm -hmm. like, you know, so th so much more happens in the book. It's, it's really kind of a kooky ride. There's a lot of like inner... Um, emotional turmoil, like within all the scientists of this project, the quick, the quick plot of the movie, which is which is incredibly simplified by Buck Henry, is basically, um, in Florida, there's a privately run, um, you know, pro quote unquote privately, but we learn kind of not really privately, right? Run, um, it's, it's research. running on government grants. Yeah, which I think is like something that Georgie's got knows, but they, it's like a hidden. You know, and and that's yeah. it's a, that's extrapolated on the book, but uh, research facility where George C. Scott plays Jake Terrell, and he's the lead uh, he's the lead doctor slash researcher in which he's trying to get this male dolphin to understand and communicate in English, right? And so that's been going on. You have this kind of spook played by Paul Servino very early on trying to kind of blackmail his way into the facility. And you have, you know, you have Scott's kind of band of misfits trying to make this happen. And then rather quickly, but it's, it's, it, the movie's a hundred minutes long, basically halfway through you get to what essentially is there's this, group you know kind of this terrorist group of sorts there's a mole inside his his research facility and they essentially want to assassinate the president of the united states using this hyper intelligent dolphin yeah and it, i mean look this movie has the is it the greatest tagline in the history of film unwittingly <laughs> he trained a dolphin how to assassinate the president of the united states yeah. um and so, Which is weird. I get that it's the hook, but one thing I was surprised because I've always like that's the only way I've ever it's known like a about shockingly this movie. Small part of the movie, it, which it, I think it, a well, lot of the movie is just training the is like well, research and, the and training so, the so dolphin. We, like, uh, so here's the thing: uh, it's a very flawed movie, kind of a famously. I kind of like. I kind of like this. Well, movie. No, I, look, I I kind of <laughs> like it too, and I, and I saw it. A while back and it's one of those things you know I, i've always really liked nickels and i think it's that thing of like when you really get into the graduate and you really get into nickels writ large and you know who's afraid of virginia wolf and all these things and then you naturally you know catch 22 is one of my favorite books like oh you made, oh, you made a catch 22 movie very you know okay buck henry wrote it oh my god and then you're like wait a minute the day of the dolphin like what <laughs> how did that how was that the movie and it, look it literally was he was under contract with the producer who um, was, uh, let me make sure I get his name. I think it's, is it Ivan, James Ivan? Anyway, I'll, I'll get in a second. He was under it's contract. Levine. He, Levine, thank you. Yeah. He, needed, he needed another movie. And um, he, you know, found this book. It was a hit. Went to Buck Henry. He's like, you want to just make this movie? And everybody involved kind of was like, 
yeah, let's do this. There were there wasn't a lot of excitement. You know, they they filmed in you know a tropical location. I think there was excitement there, and literally on the DVD, Buck Henry gives an interview and kind of just is like, yeah, we just did it. We wanted to satisfy the contract. I wanted to you know hang down there. You know, we you know we loved you know, the work George did. And then it became a, f you know, a famously fraught production, right? George C. Scott famously struggled, you know, with his alcoholism throughout his career. They're in this Caribbean scenario where, you know, he was kind of able to get off the reservation, you know, raise hell in a couple bars. You know, the production was delayed three days, I think, because of some of that. Yeah. Like he was, you know, yeah. you know, I think, Early on in his career, Nichols claimed that was the you know the hardest shoot he had that you know of his, you know there's a lot that of water photography to that point. Um, yeah. And I will say when you watch it, and Buck Henry says this in the interview, the 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 most beautiful parts of the movie is the underwater photography. It's really incredible. It's pre Jaws. The mm -hmm. dolphin stuff's amazing. The score's incredible, right? It, the score was I, the score I believe was nominated for an Oscar, right? Was, so yeah. like, formally. There's a lot of really interesting things happening, and I think, you know, to your point with the where does credit go with editing, you gotta you gotta credit Sam Osteen for the patience of the frame, in, in as much as like, you know, that first half of the movie is not a political thriller, right? It's like a mel, it's like a melancholy examination of like a dolphin and it's you know and and the Terrell character trying to kind of figure out what's going on. They give them a mate and then they have to separate them. And that's like a very dramatic portion of the film because they don't want to do it. And, um, Darren, what'd you think? Had you seen this before? What was your yeah, thought? Yeah. It's so funny. I've actually, I've seen it a few times. Um, <laughs> uh, I actually, the last time I watched it was earlier this year. If you had oh, man. told me at the beginning of the year that the movie that I was going to watch or the older film that I was going to watch twice this year was the day of the doll. <laughs> would not have believed you, but I, I, I did watch it for another, another podcast. Um, yeah, I, um, I, I don't think it's a very good movie and, sure. and, and I think Nichols doesn't think it's a very, I don't nobody, think Nichols, no, I think nobody involved um, would, and, would and claim, one of the things yeah. that Sam says in his book, um, is that Nichols, and you spoke to this a little bit, Nichols didn't really want to do it. He didn't no. believe in it. You know, like he, I, he, and I don't think, I don't think any of them really thought. Well, Henry the, hated, Henry hated the book. Yeah. Like they didn't think it was the there. Interview, they didn't think the yeah, and, he, and yeah. apparently, and and again to your point, um, uh, Dick Silbert, who was a production designer, had already scouted all these locations, and so he talked to to Mike Nichols about where they were going to be shooting. And <laughs> I think Nichols was like, "Well, if I have to, excuse me, if I have to fulfill a contract, uh, that doesn't sound like such a bad place to do it." In, well, you know, exactly. The Bahamas, right. right? So it's like, okay, well, we we have to do this. We're going to go do it, and and. Um, you know, so my t it, it didn't surprise me that Nichols' heart wasn't really in it, um, and even that 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 Buck Henry's wasn't. Um, I think, you know, an editor can do a lot of things, but it's pretty difficult to make up for a lack of enthusiasm on the part of the director and the writer. Sure, definitely. Um, if they if they're if if they're phoning it in, you really can only do so much. Um, and 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 I know that the movie does have its fans, and and Connor, you seem to be one of them, and and Larry Karajewski seems to love it, and I know others <laughs> who, who who who've um, expressed an enthusiasm for it, and I just don't think it. it I, I just think it's emotionally incoherent. Um, it's yeah. a it's a political thriller, which is weirdly apolitical. Um, yeah. Like, well, which is the. I mean, not that I uh, frankly I don't love the book. But it, it's what a betrayal of the book. Like, I mean, not that. Yeah. Not 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 that I care particularly, but like, 
if you were a Robert Merrill, like if you were like, wow, I love that hit book, The Day of the Dolphin, and then you went to the theater, you'd be like, this, I mean. It, the, it's wildly it, different, apparently. Yeah. I mean, they take the piss out of the whole thing. And it does sound like, and you know, but look, I, I keep referencing this Buck Henry DVD, but but I mean, um, I think they became interested in what they could do underwater with these do- with these creatures. Well, that, like that's I, like you know, a, that's like abundantly clear, right? Because yeah, like I the, mean, which you make sense. And, and right? I think I mean, to just everything from a technical you were, standpoint, you were talking about before, Dan, is like the reason I was enjoying it because, I, yeah, like I knew nothing about. I I only knew right like the, the, tagline, the elevator yeah. pitch right from the tagline, and so. I was kind of watching the whole movie and I'm like, oh, I guess they'll get to the assassination <laughs> plot eventually. And it's like, well, even to like the point full, where like the Servino like, like hour and 15 minutes goes by before that even yeah. becomes like an inkling. And I, that was, yeah. that's the portion of the movie that I did enjoy. Cause it's like, I sort of was enjoying the process of training the dolphin, which I do right. feel mm-hmm. like is, has a lot to do with the editing and the underwater photography sure. yeah. and, and, and you know and like you know they had to figure out what it was that was going to make the apparently in the book you can correct me if i'm wrong because you read <laughs> most of it um the, the 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 dolphins don't speak with their mouths because that's not really an anatomical possibility with dolphins they make noises with their blowholes that then get interpreted as it's language. all it's yeah. like all sonar right yeah it's all, and, and so right. they made this decision to make the dolphins talk like <laughs> yeah. as though they were people, which you know is both well, Buck Henry did the voice impossible. Yeah, but Buck also Henry was yeah. the uncredited it was, voice. Was, was, yeah. was, 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 and, I, and I think Sam did some of the the the, the pre-recording as well. It was a mix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Buck, Buck did it on set with George C. Scott, um, and then obviously there's a lot of post. I mean, obviously, yeah, and, and, and in the yeah. post, and, and, yeah, and whether yeah. or not either of them ended up in the final, I don't know. But sure, um, you know, one of the things that that, that frustrates me about the, the, the film is that when it turns out that there's this plot, like the whole central, the 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 the, the, the central aim of their research is to is to give the um, the dolphins language, you know, human language, right, and and let them communicate um, with humans on human terms, basically. Um, and then the plot has nothing to do with that. No, they're, just, right. they're really just training them to swim and plant bombs on things, and which, by the way, at the end of the day, it's just a bomb on a boat. You know, like however you got. Like why use a doll? You know, it just, it just seemed like there, there wasn't there wasn't enough to the plot, and the plot didn't connect well enough to what the research was to make it all feel like. Well, that's part look, of the Henry. Henry says like he just he cut the shit out of the whole. I mean, he cut like he was like, it, it, it's a ridiculous book. He's yeah. like, I I took all of it out. He's like, does I, the book I play a satire? Like, does it? Um. It, it's a very it's it's a French guy writing about American politics at okay. a very fraught time in you know American politics right. in, in American politics in in world politics right, right. and I yeah. think I think it reads as such right, right. it reads as a a cheeky critique and they like didn't feel like adapting that tone or or well what no it, like, I, I yeah. forget about I mean the political stuff doesn't even hold uh, you know uh, a Darren as you said before but forget about that I mean just like the the back half of the book right like just like the the process of i mean there are chapters there's like multiple povs there's like you know transcription sections that are that are literally dialogue right you you know in the i mean it is a just a different (laughs) i mean it's probably not adaptable i mean to buck henry's credit i do think 
if I were tasked with adapting it, I would similarly be like, okay, we do have to simplify this because I don't yeah. know how we make. I mean, the, the thing is, it's know. not an uninteresting premise, right? No. I mean, I, yeah. it, 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 I had the experience on this movie like I do on a, on a lot of movies that I don't particularly love, which is I, I sit there and I imagine the good movie that the it could good have been, yeah, you know, yeah. and I'm like, there is a good movie to make from this, right? Um, and you know, and whether or not they had the permission to really, really take it where it needed to go to make it truly compelling, or whether they just didn't have the will or didn't didn't find the code to crack it, um, who can say? I do think it's interesting that at the end of of uh, Sam's uh, interview in this book. I should mention, I, I I don't know if we've mentioned the book, but this is a book oh, yeah. uh, called Cut to the Chase, um, which is a series of interviews that his 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 um, widow did with him when, when he was alive, obviously. Um, uh, and she really covers his whole career and gets him to talk about all of the films that he worked on. His his widow was uh, Bobby Osteen. And um, and I've spoken to her about about Sam you know, on other uh, podcasts, and we talked about Chinatown. And, and um, anyway, this is a terrific book if you're interested in editing or really um, just getting a look behind um, the curtain at how movies are made in general. Um, Sam was uh, pretty unique among editors which in, in that his whole career, he pretty much spent going to set and being on set for the shoot and then began editing um, after production. Normally, there's no budget for that. And, and we all um, you know start on day one of production and um, and there's really very little time to go to set. Um, he, all of his directors wanted him on set, um, and and, produ and producers as well. And they all speak to how much his presence there was was helpful to them. But anyway, at the end of his interview about um, uh, Day of the Dolphin, he says, "Eh, it's too bad that it wasn't so well received. I really like that movie." And he, even though he <laughs> talked about all of the things that were that were problematic about its making, um, which I think um, goes to the core of what it is that editors are tasked with, which is that mm. we have to find something to love in everything that we work on, even if it's something that is, for whatever reason, not working on multiple levels, or even if it's just something that we would probably not choose to watch in our in our normal um, in our normal viewing habits. Um, you it, you have to find what is good about it and 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 bring that to the fore. And exercise your taste and your judgment based on the things that you really respond to in the footage. Mm -hmm. um, I've certainly worked on things that, uh, you know, were not so well received, or and and possibly rightly so. Um, mm. Certainly, things that I would, you know, if you put me into the Eternal Sunshine machine and erased my memory <laughs> of having worked on the films, are probably not things that I would have ever chosen to watch in the first place. And yet, I. Find my memories of working on those things um, are very pleasurable, and I and I, I I like them or even love them in many ways, despite maybe the fact that they don't work so well. Because that was my job. My job was to find that is the task. It's mm. to find something that that works in it yeah. and bring and, and do your best within the powers that you have, you know, to to emphasize those things in 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 the final in the final work. Did he have? I mean, just. Um... Were there any movies? I'm excited to read the book, um, Cut to the Chase, like you mentioned. Um, were there any projects that he reflected on with regret? I mean, not like Day of the Dolphin, like, oh, I wish more people saw it, but maybe like 
there was a better cut in there or anything that you can think of? You know, for, I, I read it years ago, and hmm. for purposes of, of, of doing, having this talk with you, I just went back and sort of reread kind of his yeah. bio and then his interviews on the particular movies that we're discussing. And he seemed to have um, pretty good memories of, of, That's nice. of, yeah. of, of the four that one we're talking my, about. One of my favorite things I loved, I, I got really into, I loved... Uh, I love James Garner and I love the Rockford Files and and I got I mean Connor knows this I got I watched like every James Garner movie uh, you know every episode of the Rockford I got really into I read so his great. book The Garner Files which is a really good fun you know as kind of celeb uh autobiographies go uh, incredibly honest um uh good book and at the and he did something I don't think I've ever seen before at the end of his book he goes through his filmography and he star rates all of his movies. <laughs> That's fine. And he comments on like all of them, basically. And like oh, he's really like really tough. Like really tough on his movies. Like like my fellow Americans, for example, he's like, could have been great. The the director was a hack. Like just you're like, <laughs> oh my God. He was letterboxed before there was letterboxed. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. It's like, deeply that. And like, you know, he yeah. loved obviously Murphy's Romance, which he got nominated for, and he loved like his Doors Day movies, you know. So he, you know. Um, I'm, I just, I, I, I wish everybody did that. It's so fascinating. You know, like there are movies, yeah. like he did somebody has to have made McCall. that letterbox list by now. Right. I should do it. Like just transcribed the James Garner onto his, a letterbox his own ratings list. Of his yeah. Own films. yeah. You know, he did like, you know, he worked with, you know, people don't, I don't know if people know this movie. He worked with uh, Marlon Brando, young Marlon Brando in a movie called Sayonara. 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 And he yeah. talks about working with Brando and just how he even, even young, it was like, Look, not unlike working with George C. Scott, I think you know, you know, we can move on to to, uh, to straight time. But but I think with the, the interesting thing with, I'm endlessly fascinated with George C. Scott as just a as a person because it's like one of our great actors. They this know. is three years after Patton. This is his like decade of George C. Scott, first name on the call sheet, bankable movie star, right? Like he right. is like Patton was huge. He makes the hospital, the Patty Shafsky movie, not a hit, but not a not a not hit, right? It, right. One of the most incredible mid movie monologues you'll ever see. I love the hospital. Um, I think a lot of people think it's overwrought, but I guess it's Shafsky. Your your miles were very, I guess, on him. But but like you know, he made a lot of these movies, and this is right in the middle of that. And he really struggled with his you know ad addictive stuff, and he was a handful. But even like anybody, even on this really fraud set, people would come back to like look like. He was the best, you know, and it's that thing of like, you know, I th I think he's like not even bad in the movie, which I no, think I is kind of like, nuts. The, like, and it, the, what's so crazy is yeah. the movie that monologue, that opening, that's directly from the book. Yeah, that whole like monologue to that weird group of women who are oh, like, and, and he's then like, it's kind he's of like, like talking about a speaking engagement. Yeah. Yeah. that's how the book yeah. opens, yeah. which yeah. is which is beautifully edited. That sequence, it's like a really well, yeah, good, interestingly, it's like a really yeah, it's good interesting composed. Yeah, so I just. Look, I, Darren, we talk about this a lot on the podcast. I, it's funny you mentioned the thing about editors. I, I find we both work in production. It's mostly co commercials, and we've we've made our own short stuff over the years. But like to your point, the older I get, the more stuff I work on, the more things I review. The film stage goes on, the the commercials I make. I find myself doing this thing of like, it, it really takes a lot for me to like hate a movie where I'm going to go out of my way to be like this movie let me tell you about how much right, i hate this right. movie because i find myself being like man i know how hard it is to be on these sets and like i, I like to grab onto something and be like 
yeah, this was cool, right? Like I, I did <laughs> sure. like this part. I did like yeah this element, and I, you know, for better or worse, I find myself doing that, and I think, I you think, know, I, I've, I've embraced it. <laughs> I think it's, I think your your life only gets better when you make a decision to try to watch things generously and look yeah. for, you know, either look for what's good in them. Um, you know, particularly when you're in the position of watching people's works in progress and giving feedback and it's like, there, there's no point in, in, I mean, you have to be honest, but there is a way to frame your honesty in a way that's constructive and helpful. And I yeah, think that, that's that the same thing. principle carries over to just watching movies. Yeah. You know, for me to really, really dislike something, I just really need to feel, it, it, it needs to feel like nobody who was involved really cared mm, or right. that they're trying to pull a fast one on you. Like if, like if it be, like sure. when, when a movie is just, or a show is just fundamentally dishonest about human behavior. And I'm not talking about fantastical or surreal stuff. I'm just talking, I'm just talking about where nobody really felt like dialing in on right. the way human beings actually behave Yeah. then, or what their, or what real experience is. Then, um, we have a problem. Th then yeah. I just feel like someone's just wasting my time. I, um, I, I will say what's a bummer about the day of the dolphin is it, it did get eviscerated. Um, it did essentially kind of by choice basically end the Buck Henry, Mike Nichols relationship for a good long while. Not like not they were friends, but I mean, they didn't yeah. make much together for a long while after this by choice. Pauline Kale, like famously like went out of her way to be like this fucking piece of shit. Like these New York assholes trying to go down here and, and you're like, Polly, all right, all right, come on, can we just, and, I think she um, said if talking dolphins was the best that they could do, then they should just give up movie making altogether. Yeah. She was, so definitely, she was I mean, look, she was on one, you know, least. she was, she, she had a, she had a style, you know, obviously, you know, we, we respect the legend, but, um, I, so I, that's I a bummer. I love Paulie. I love Oh, Pauly. me too. Oh, no, uh, me too. Uh, no, uh, she, like, she says what she always says what you're thinking. <laughs> I love, dude. There's so much about. I mean, the Warren. Dude, read the Warren Beatty. Read Star. Read that. That just to to Pauline Kale's whole thing is. I mean, the whole part where she was almost uh, producing partners with Beatty and the anyway. Um, yeah. Fascinating, but so yeah, so we so. Uh, only what is it? Five years later, you have this incredibly. I mean, look, and this is straight time we're talking about. Oh, this, yeah. I think, is a stone cold. I mean, yeah, it's a mass. This is stone, a, this stone is a cold masterpiece. Yeah, this movie I mean, is a this masterpiece. Is one of them. Yeah. I'm sorry that we had to talk about. I, you're going chronologically. I was like, should we talk about Day of the Dolphin last? Uh, <laughs> no, every, no, no, it's good. We got everything else on the slate today yeah. are varying degrees of like to love. Agreed. And, and I absolutely love Straight Time. It's what long a great favorite. In fact, when you guys reached out to me. And I and I said, yeah, I want to do this. Let's talk about Sam Osteen. Um, any excuse to talk about Straight Time? Mm. Good excuse. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Not enough people have seen it even to this day. Yeah. And um, and uh, it's it's one that for me has held up very well on repeated viewings over the years. Well, tell me from the book. Maybe he mentioned. Maybe Sam mentions this if he was on set. Um, you know, oh, so was, fam yeah. famously, somewhat famously. Um, this is a first artist's movie for those who don't know. This was a conglomerate of filmmakers, right? I think it was Barbara was part of it, right? Barbara Streisand. And it was initially, so, it was yeah. like, I think it was yeah. initially, was it Hoffman and um, Poitier and... Yeah, I guess. Was, was Redford, those, was Redford name, part of it? Those names are all correct. No, I think it's, I think it's Newman, I think it's Newman Poitier, and Hoffman are, are the originals and they were roping people. Yeah, it's, and it's, uh, basically, it's Poitier, Streisand, Newman, yeah. all Newman. 
uh, yeah. Steve McQueen and Dustin Hoffman. McQueen, McQueen. I always forget about yeah. McQueen. Um, um, I always prefer Newman. I hate to say it. Um, but anyway, um, but so they basically they're doing their United Artists, right? They they're yeah. they are trying to do what Fairbanks did way back when. Um, kind of what in a way what Ben Affleck and Matt Damon are kind of trying to do now in a different way, which is interesting with Air and and, and their whole thing. But but they're basically. These actors trying to control the production, right? Trying to own more of, more of it, more of the creative, more of the financial. Uh, they call it first artists. Stuff like Pocket Money gets made early on, yeah. which was a Terry Malick script, right? The, I think Stuart Rosenberg directed it. We covered it on the podcast, yeah. right, Con? Mm-hmm. Interesting movie. And, like, they're making these movies. I feel like Owl and the Pussycat, there's a Streisand movie. You know, like, Streisand has a hit. But mostly it's, it's a lot of kind of floppy movies, unfortunately. It's right in the heart of New Hollywood. It's the 70s. And by the time Straight Time comes out, it ends up becoming this kind of legal scenario after the fact where um, – you know, Hoffman had to basically kind of sue First Artist. And that was kind yeah. of the First Artist was kind of ending by the time this movie came out, unfortunately. Um, but uh, Hoffman was going to direct the movie. And w- what I have read is like the first day at set, they're in the prison and he's like framing up shots. I mean, it's in the Wikipedia, right? But I had read it elsewhere. But like, he like couldn't decide on like an establishing shot. And then like by the time the end of the day was done, I think he was kind of having a crisis of confidence. I think the money people were a little worried. And I think yeah. so basically in his worry, in his whatever, he called Ulu Grosbarg, who was his friend from New York theater, who uh, for those who don't know, we've talked about him because we did the deep end of the ocean on this yeah. podcast for Michelle Pfeiffer, which I think was his last movie, one of his last movies. Um, was a great theater guy, right? Great mm-hmm. actors director, and so he comes in right and literally after the movie starts and takes over, and then proceeds to make probably his best movie. I would think. I mean, it's an incredible character piece. It's based on, is it No Beast So Fierce, the Eddie Bunker book? Eddie Bunker's Eddie Bunker novel. Yeah, Eddie Eddie Bunker's in the movie. Yep. You would know Eddie Bunker as Mr. Blue yeah. from Reservoir Dogs, yeah. I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is just a great movie. I mean, Darren, you love it, right? What what, I what do. about this from an editorial standpoint, I suppose? Well, what one about of the things that's really interesting. Yeah. So so um I was talking earlier about how in his work with with Polanski and Nichols, it's hard to know whether they were making him look good or he was making them look good, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody's doing their yeah. Everybody appears to be doing their best work. And when I see that over and over again on an editor's resume, I think, well, the editor has something to do with that because sure. nobody's doing their best work that consistently, right? But you watch, you know, movies from Polanski's heyday, you watch movies from Nichols' heyday, and they look like they're in their cups all the time. Mm-hmm. And and that's, that's what an editor does. Um, with Straight Time, I thought it was really interesting that... It was um, a movie that, as you said, um, you know, it had been Hoffman's pet project. He was going to write it. I mean, he was going to direct it and star in it. Um, There had been a a few drafts of the script out there. They had started with a a script that was actually written by Michael Mann. Oh, wow. um, Right. uh, Based on the novel. Um, And as you say, um, from what I've read and heard, um, he got, he was very, very, they had barely gotten started and he realized that he couldn't with his method acting his process yeah he couldn't both direct and play the part you know that it was too much because once he becomes that character he's only that character and he can't really function as a director so he called in Ulu Grosbard um Ulu Grosbard they shut down for a couple of weeks 
He wanted a different script. He threw out the Michael Mann script. He went back to an earlier draft that had been written by Alvin Sargent. He brought in a new writer to do new right, dialogue. Baum, I think. They, Jeffrey Baum, yeah. They never really got happy with all the dialogue, so they did a lot of improvising on set. Um, and you can tell that there, because Ulu comes, maybe because Ulu comes from the stage or maybe for right. other reasons, um, that there isn't quite the same level of intentionality mm. to the camera. Um, and, and just the visual style of the film that you get with Nichols and, um, and, and, and Polanski. And yet the whole thing does feel coherent. Like it, like it feels more than coherent. It really feels intentional, Mm. you know, certainly in terms of its pace and its storytelling and its characterizations and how it reveals details of people's character, particularly the lead character played by, um, uh, Dustin Hoffman. So... Um, that that's kind of like the Rosetta Stone for me, right? It's like watching a movie like this that you know was a mess behind yeah. the scenes, right? Yeah, yeah, Where yeah. they were, they really didn't necessarily have a coherent, co coherent or cohesive process all the way through, and yet the result is very much a coherent and cohesive film. And you think that's that's Sam, that that right. Sam pulling way more than his share of the weight. Um, and, but in and, so yeah, many of the scenes, who wasn't there, I have to surmise, but it seems pretty clear to me. And there's there's moments in there that are so clearly just like actors. Oh my god! Riffing yeah, riffing mm-hmm. and 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 improvising and being able to make that work and make scenes make sense when actors are really just kind of like feeling their way through the scene as they're shooting it is right. is no small amount of work and requires no small amount of ta- of talent. There are so many scenes though in Straight Time rewatching it that are sitting on masters though. And it's incredible. Yeah. Like to your point, like Grosbarg's frame might have not been as intentional as a Nichols or, or a Plansky. And yet maybe it's just the power of the performances. Like, you know, like the scene in the, the, you know, apartment hotel apartment with, uh, you know, Hoffman and Busey, I think is one, I, th- I don't think the camera cuts. Right. And it's like Busey wants to shoot up. Right. Oh, yeah, and, it's, yeah. and, and Hoffman's like, you know, I, you know, that's three years, you know, if you're doing that in my room. Right. And, mm-hmm. and it obviously ends up, you know, coming back. Spoiler. Like that's just that's the camera. Just that's just rolling on film. Right. And letting yeah. these these two. I mean, look, Busey, you know, pun, you know, is a punchline now, now, sadly. And, you know, the guy was in a terrible accident and whatnot. But like truly a dynamo actor like you forget, like the Buddy Holly story like this movie. I mean, he was like fire in a bottle right yeah. and like in this movie really represents like you know you have so many really like totemic like you know kathy bates who hoffman saw in what was the play we just were talking about Connor with billy ray right like yeah, yeah hoffman saw her on stage brought her in for from casting put her in this movie it's like one of her first movies if not her first movie like I think she does the Milos Forman movies, the one she, in the she, early she has 70s. She a small role in Taking Off, yeah. Yeah, she sings that beautiful song. Or she was, I think she was credited as... Bo- uh, Bobo. Bobo Bates. Bobo, Bates. Bobo. yeah, because yeah. she was... Everybody called her Bobo. Yeah, and then so, like, the the back half of the decade after, like, being on the stage, she's in this movie, right? And she's married to Busey, and it's a whole interesting dynamic. There are so many... M.M. at Walsh, my God. Like, there are so many amazing performances here, and I think it's just... This is one of those movies, I feel like this, you know, I forget it's Dustin Hoffman. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and I, I don't, I don't use that, um, I don't use that a compliment a lot. Like, I, I really, I, you forget. Like, I was like, oh yeah, this is just Max. Like, 
It's like, some you, guy, know, yeah. like, you just like forget. Like you just yeah. totally forget it's him. It's really incredible. Yeah. Well, there's yeah, it's, like it, a, it's, it, it is easily like if not my favorite Hoffman performance, like certainly one of my two or three. Oh God, Hoffman yeah. Performance. I, I mean, it's, I was even trying to think like, and it's so funny. He's such a funny actor too. Like he's been his accolades come from you know the rain man wag the dog uh midnight cowboy and and it's like 11 right 11 out of 10 and it look it's great like you know what i mean like i like those performances but i think like so often even with actors like that you know these performances right which are just never gonna get the credit right like you know like, you know connor we were talking about before like ethan hawking the before movies right like there those performances will never be accoladed right, the where same they, way they're on a lower register they're on a, because it's yeah. just so lived yeah. in so ingrained so lower and it's like i i would have to think about other but it's he's so good here it's crazy Teresa it's russell incredible. obviously an early performance of hers but yeah i, I mean, mean it's such a true so it for me straight time is probably one of the only um true neo-noirs of certainly of its time yeah in the sense that it was it, it stylistically it isn't a film noir it doesn't have much to do with yeah. the film noirs that would be made in the in the 30s through the 50s but the plot, it has yeah. that it has the 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 particularly like french noir right it has this essential dark existentialism yeah soul it is a, yeah. it is an, it is an existential film about the darkest Right. state that a human being can occupy it's a, it, it's a film that like wallows it's a like it yeah it has you know, a, you know like elevator to the gallows comes to mind right like a movie where you're just like from the beginning you're like oh this is gonna be bad it is not gonna be that well for anybody <laughs> yeah. involved you're but like, really i mean what the thing that i think really marks all the great film noirs um and marks this one is that the lead actor is, a, is an asshole I mean, he's a terrible yeah, person terrible person yeah. and 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 the really cool thing the really cool trick that this movie plays and I have to think that Sam played a part in this because given how much improvisation was going on and, and how many different kinds of performances the actors were probably trying out throughout the story, is that this movie pulls a really nifty trick in that the first 40 minutes or so, you look at this guy, Max, and you think, this is probably a really good guy who just yeah, got yeah. in over his head. He went along on a run that he shouldn't yeah. have gone along on. He had a gun with him. He probably did six years for something that he probably should have done six months for. Right. Um, his his parole officer, who is also an asshole, um, uh, points out that he's been in, in and out of trouble with the law since he was 12. And, you know, you know, some people grow up disadvantaged and everything like that. And you think, like, this guy's just really trying to make an honest go of it. And what you learn <laughs> at about 40 to 45 minutes right. is that he has been making an effort, but it has really been an effort. Like. Yep. He has had to suppress who he really is, which is a terrible person. Yeah. Um, to try, he he doesn't want to go back to prison, so he's trying to make a go at being, you know, a straight citizen and have a job, and and he doesn't have the strength for it. He doesn't have the temperament for it, and so when Emmett Walsh has pushed his button one too many times, he just gives up the charade and he reverts to who he really is, which is a violent, impatient criminal who has no regard for other people in society or human life he's a, he's an absolute criminal to his core and not just because of economic circumstances and all those things he's just he's just he's just a, he's a sociopath yeah and when that comes out you go oh wow and very rarely does a movie get to pull the trick of yeah 
showing you a shift in character, like a, where a person becomes a different person and have it work so satisfactorily as it does in this movie. Well, and the joy, um, and then at the end, you know, it's clear that he's not. Yeah, he's not going. He's not going to change. You know, right? In the same way that you know, Bob the Flambeur is never going to change. Well, right? he's I just going to say that's that. the most the Bob movie. Right? He, is, he's is, never going to stop doing what he does. Bob you know, which is, that he's is gonna, definitely he's, the he's going to gamble. To his yeah. own detriment and to everybody else's detriment for as long as he's alive. Right. Like I was going to say, exactly like this, movie, yeah. this movie at its core, if you had to, if I had to put it in like a subgenre or whatever, is like it's an addiction movie, right? Like it, it has this kind of like almost format of an addiction movie where, yeah, you, you know, like where you see this, this guy, like you said, trying to like escape this the pole of this thing right and in this case mm -hmm. it's not particularly a substance it's just literally it's it, it's like a struggle to break core behavior patterns right and mm -hmm. one of the things that you mentioned that emmett walsh where he like he leaves him on the side of the highway and and just to bring the editing into it like i imagined myself like the fascinating like it's an extremely visually eclectic movie as far as the editing is concerned, mm -hmm. which I thought was really interesting. Like you have Dan, like you mentioned before, like you have these really patient conversations, right. That happen near the beginning of the film. And then you have a car chase in the middle of it. That is the sort <laughs> of like powder keg that shifts everything over. Like you're talking about Darren, like that becomes this sort of ultimate kind of collapse. And then it's this like, it's this I, I just really noticed the film picks up this like pulse, this like really it, it's not kinetic in an editing sense. Like it's not, you know, constant cuts or anything like that, but it does just really visually carry itself at that point in a mm -hmm. much more in a much shaggier way almost. But sure. but again, like you talked about, not shaggy in a lazy way, but shaggy in a almost um you know, I don't know, in a way that is controlled, but it, I don't know. I was, I was really, really struck with it. This is the second time I've watched it this year, actually, because I watched it when we, when we did our Kathy Bates episode, um, as, as prep. And it was fun to, that was the first time I had seen this, uh, when I watched it for that episode, but it was fun to like watch this one purely kind of aesthetically. Right. Um, well, the joy, I, I also think to your point of the shagginess, it's like, the movie, the minute he becomes who he always was, the movie, like, there's a release of tension. Yeah, it lets at least, at least it lets for the second down. act. It's, yeah, right? Like, you yeah. can tell, like, there's joy. Like, Hawk, Hawk, the Max character, like, there's joy yeah. in him being like, you know what, well, fuck it. Or like, cer gonna, certainly right. at least vitality, right? Like, there is a... Yeah, like, yeah. There, for there's... A just, you know, yeah. he, like, you know, for, for a minute, like, he, he consummates his relationship with Teresa Russell, right? He has these kind of like more comfortable conversations about getting a weapon, which he, you know, it's that thing of like, he knows how to do these things, right? Like right. there is a comfort in like, I know how to get a gun. I know how to stick up a place. Like I'm good at this. Mm -hmm. right? right. And like, which that we makes hadn't you seen feel up to good. That point. Right. And that, and up then to that point, we still believe we could we believe, believe maybe he was somebody who kind of got roped into something that he doesn't really do yeah. very much. And he was out long for the ride. And, yeah. and, and then once, he makes that shift in this movie. You go, oh no, 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 no! He wasn't a lost man, right? He was. Well, and it's great because he is, it reminds he is a very me active participant yeah. in his own crimes, and it reminds me of the beauty of the Hoffman movie star thing, which is like you know, there's the famous Redford 
you know, the graduate story, we know which like Sam, Sam edited where it's like, they wanted Redford to be the graduate. And it was like, Nichols has that great quote. He's like, you know, Redford can't be Benjamin Braddock because he's never been told no by a woman in his life. Right. right. It's like, yeah. that can't be who, you know, and so they get Hoffman and they get him through. And it's like, you can parallel the Hoffman Redford movie star career. Like the old man in the gun is the, right. you know, it, you know, he's a likable guy. Yeah. The real guy in the New Yorker profile was a likable guy. The guy or like the, the hot the, rock, the, right? Like the that, David Lauer, that's like hot an, rock, yeah. right? That's yeah. more, right? Yeah. That's more it's of a funny comedy. But yeah, on that uh, earlier God, uh, the hot rocks good Peter podcast Heath. that I did this year, the one for which I was watching um, Day of the Dolphin, we were talking about um, Three Days of the Condor. Sure. And yep. and my issue with Three Days of the Condor, which is a perfectly entertaining movie on a lot of levels, right, is that Redford is just completely miscast as some bookish. Yeah. Um, you know, CIA kind of like not even an yeah. op, really just a guy who sits there and reads books all the time. And like nope, a mope. He's like, yeah, you're kind of like, really pays yeah. attention to, right? He's sort of like the guy in the office of, and, and the, the other guy on the podcast and I agreed that the part was almost certainly written for, and we said simultaneously Dustin Hoffman. Right. Like, well, it, like you can, yeah. you can totally picture Hoffman in that role, but for whatever reason, it didn't work out that way, and it was Redford. And like again, the movie's entertaining on a lot of levels, but you just feel like he's the wrong guy. In the same way that you know Hoffman, you know, I mean, anybody can be miscast, or right? it doesn't matter no, how sure. good an actor you are. Um, but he, Hoffman, is so perfect in this as oh my god, in a way that you would not necessarily have anticipated watching The Graduate, right? He's or like, or, or you know, or any, I mean any movie he had made up until this movie, sure. right? Yeah. Like maybe Marathon Man, you can kind of see, you know, that's a straightforward thriller. He's very good, right? Like he, yeah. there's a charm to that character. So maybe, you know, but he's a he's the good guy in that movie. That's, I love that movie. But like, you know, really, man, Hoffman 70s would, you could put it up against Nicholson. I mean, yeah, he I mean, really any, was- yeah, anybody. Really right up there. It's amazing. But yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Straight time is just, it becomes this more of a ticking bomb type of a thing in the back half. There is a, there is an adjustment of aesthetic. Um, I do think, you know, once Harry Dean Stanton comes in, you know, as is often the case with that guy, it's like he comes in, he's throwing heat. He kind of adds this like extra ennui to what's happening. Right. It's like, you're really getting all these great character actors just kind of giving different angles of the same thing. Like every guy, I love how every guy in the movie's like, you got to get me out of here. I'm doing my best, but I just, I can't stand my wife. And you're like, it's the funniest energy to like all of these scenes and feels like so specifically like masculine in a very like, you know, like directly after vietnam there's a lot of it's very of the moment but also very universal it's just you can't really say anything bad about this movie it's really incredible what i think is so interesting about when harry dean stanton comes in too is like he <laughs> and Busey are these know, like, they're like are the you know these like it's the like same, these two yeah. wolves inside of inside of uh dustin hoffman to a degree but the difference is they both like they both managed to kind of restrain themselves in a way and obviously maybe obviously Busey a little less so because he's got like the addiction issues on top of you know the criminal lifestyle but and they're stuff. trying but harder yes, than max ever and, did and what right, i love the, the most about yeah him him 
unleashing himself is like, and I, I guess to spoil it a little bit or whatever, but like the reason the final act of the movie goes downhill is because he's also bad at this thing that he wants to do, right? Like he's like, he's, he, he doesn't have the, the restraint to even be mm-hmm. a good criminal, right? Like, which is, right, I, he can't help himself. I like, yeah, yeah. Like, lo- he just can't in any situation get out of his own way. Right. Where, well, that the whole, like he, he, he can't, he keeps grabbing stuff. Right. I remember yeah, the no, first no, no. time and, I watched and, it. And Dean Stanton is trying to, he's like, Hey, our time the is up. Like we gotta go. And this is like, and this is like, you know, I mean, look, like just storytelling yeah. wise, like it's always funny. Like, when you see something like that and you're like, how does this seem so original? Where it's like, yeah, the thief just won't stop like <laughs> right. thieving. Yeah. And you're like, I don't think I've ever, I remember when I first watched this movie a few years ago, I remember I was like, I don't think I've ever seen that before. Yeah. Like, like literally it, what if a thief was just like, I know I have to leave. I just got to keep grabbing shit. I got to, I just love, I love it, the It does make me wonder why they threw out the Michael Mann script because that it feels like anti Michael Mann right. to do something like that to be like like if it's if it's a he Michael would Ma- never yeah right. if it's you, a Michael Mann script when yeah, the yeah. clock well, hand hits like, whatever like you know you would bring up Michael Mann I was just thinking about Heat because yeah I was having a conversation um, with Allison Anders um, probably that great yeah, yeah. sometime in the last year about Heat and and you know I mean everybody loves Heat like it's a it's a it's a it's a magnificent movie. But she does. She did say she goes. I don't believe that there are criminals. Like, like I don't that, believe. Right. I don't believe that those robbers exist in the real world. And by that, she means these very cultured, yeah. very professional, upwardly mobile, and like hyper precise and disciplined right. kind of guys who behave as though they're like stockbrokers or something. Right. Sure, Whereas yeah. the you know, and she's absolutely right. You know, right, it's, sure. a, it's a total fantasy, right? Um, but. <laughs> You know, it, but, but his earlier movie, Thief, I mean, I believe those thieves exist. Right. And I definitely believe that the the robbers in, in, in straight time exist. Those are real people. Those are like impetuous, struggling against their inner demons constantly, sometimes winning, usually losing. Um, and um, but definitely the kind who would get into a jewelry store and go and like and and blow the whole thing because there was this one watch that they wanted to find for their girlfriend. Right. <laughs> well, and don't you think I mean that's I not to go down the heat rabbit hole, but I think that's why the Kilmer character has last you know to me is like a is a huge highlight of heat because right. I think Chris Hurlis is like that's the real guy. Right? Like yeah. the guy who's like yeah, he's crazy. Like, like this guy, he maybe is good at explosives, and he's maybe good at, you know, criminal stuff. But like, you know, he can't control himself, right? right? And I think, and I think, yeah. you know, that I think helps the movie. But that's a great point, and I feel like, yeah, I mean, what um, I love too about the watch thing that you mentioned too is like, yeah. I, when I rewatching it, I was like. I think he already grabbed the watch, which is like what I love even more is that he's just like grabbing yeah. fistfuls of stuff and throwing it at a yeah, bag it just and he's still looking. Yeah. yeah. And it's so and it's like, yeah, didn't, didn't clock it. And so yeah. he's, and he's going to blow the whole deal over something that he's already got. Yeah. He's already got. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, it's just, yeah, it's a great, I mean, it's just a great, great inward thing. I mean, and like Grosberg, we said, I mean, like he makes, you know, true confessions a couple years after this, which is an interesting, you know, Robert De Niro, Robert Duvall movie, you know, probably a movie that could have used not to, 
you know, we love we love Crossbar, but like probably could have used a a Nichols or or yeah. a Polanski. I think there's a or, or maybe just a Sam Osteen. Sure. Or a Sam o- or Sam yeah. Osteen. It's a little <laughs> it's a little long in the tooth. It's a little yeah, yeah it's it's it gets a little boxy. Um but I always think with him, he's one of those guys though, who's such a great director of actors, and I really think it's interesting what he gets out of all these performers in straight time. And I think this is definitely like, look, I think, you know, the other two movies, you know, really good in their own right. But I think you're going to not find too many better movies than this, like just in general. And I think like, you know, look, Sam, we talked about, you know, you know, edited the graduate edited Rosemary's baby. So, I mean, he's edited, you know, stone cold masterpieces, but this is right there up there with them. I think, I mean, it took a while for it to get discovered. Um, but I'm glad that more people are seeing it. And I would, you know, tell people, like you said, Darren before, like, you know, um, seek it out. It's going to be well worth your time. Um, and then, so I wanted to quickly, cause so our next movie is Nadine. And I just, I wanted to, as in, so Robert Benton, speaking of Ulu (laughs) Grosbarg type directors, yeah, we need Connor and Darren open invite. If you want to come back, (laughs) Ben is one of these, what a crazy filmography, Robert Benton, I yep. nobody ever talks about him, right? He's like one of these guys, you know. I think he's still alive. He is still alive, yeah. And his last movie was Feast of Love, um, which I believe I saw in college. Connor, you might have been with me, but Maybe. like, was a guy who, um, you know, produced or wrote rather wrote, sorry, wrote Bonnie and Clyde, right? Yeah, uh, had a writing qu- credit on What's Up Doc. Was kind of in the world. Started directing in the early 70s, did The Late Show, kind of immediately made a big name for speaking of like great, speaking of Dustin Hoffman the year after for straight time and great uh, you know, uh, directing of actors. He directs Kramer versus Kramer, which wins everything. Mm-hmm. And um, I think is kind of a forgotten, not forgotten, but like not talked about enough. I mean, gets overshadowed by a lot of other 70s movies, but it's really an interesting movie. And then makes I love, like I love Kramer versus Kramer. It's great. It's great. And then like Darren, tell, if, if anything, just any of these movies. Like I've seen, I've, I think I've seen all these movies. It's just so fascinating. Well, he also did um, uh, did Places in the Heart. Yeah. Well, I was gonna say so. He did Still the Night, which is this yep. like Marilyn Roy Scheider like kind Not of Hitchcock, Hitchcock yeah. like sleepy Hitchcock movie with yeah. the twisty ending, which is love a crazy it. movie. Places in the Heart, great little. You're right. Is that the you like me? You really like me? She wins her Oscar, right? Yeah, that's, that's when she wins the Oscar, and, the, and yeah. it was one of it was one of three major yeah country w- women on a farm. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Con- country uh, with Jessica Lange and Sam Shepard. Was that the same year as the River? The River, the River yeah. with, with Sissy Spacek and Mel yeah. Gibson, the Mark Rydell mm-hmm. movie, and and Places in the Heart. All three of them were nominated. All three films got multiple nominations. It yes. was like a, just a, it was one of those weird sort of. <laughs> Yeah, the river's the, the, the river is probably the least successful of the three in terms of like reception, but they all are like respectful, like you know, like Reagan era, like we're we're screwing the farmers. What about right. the farmers? You yeah. know, and um, and places in the heart is definitely the most successful of them. Sally Field wins her Oscar. Um, good movie, and then Nadine three years later, which is which is a and kind of we're talking about this, mm. which is was is a Kim Basinger vehicle. Like it's like there was a Kim's time coming up. There was a time like we love Kim. Yeah, nine and a half weeks is coming out. Like, what do we got for Kim? Southern Belle, and it's just I did not know that uh, when I started watching this movie, and I was just fascinated by like 
I think she's movie. pretty charming like, in this movie. It's a delight. A it's, a, it's a nice I mean, little both, movie. I mean, what you, yeah, go ahead. Such, I mean, I, I find the movie to be a delight. And so yeah, I agreed. hadn't seen it since it came out. I saw it came out in 1980. What did we decide? Seven? 87. 87. 87. Yeah. So that's when I saw it. Um, I saw it in the theater. And I remember that it got pretty bad reviews. Yeah, kind of like, kind of just ignored, basically. Middling reviews and Middling. very bad box office. Didn't do you well. Know, Benton was uh, kind of an Oscar-baity director in that moment. Yeah. Um, and this didn't feel like it was even going for that. This felt very much like a kind of, um, uh, it's a trifle, you know, it's yeah. a, it's a, it's, it's a smart little caper comedy. And he just wanted to make, he wanted to make a confection. And I thought he did a really, really beautiful job. Yeah, it, feel, with, it feels like a palate cleanser, kind of. Like it is, a, it is yeah. very much a palate cleanser, and you know, and he did, he did, um, he did, you know, weightier work again later. He did Nobody's Fool, you know, some years later with Paul Newman, and um, well, like, well, so he does Billy Bathgate is right. the next movie, which is the like, I mean, uh, which I never saw actually. Look, I mean, I don't know. I mean, he, adapting any El Doctorow book, I don't know why right. you would try. I don't, I don't know why you would try. And yeah. so Billy Bathgate is like an insane attempt and it, it does not work, but, but I think he perfects it with nobody's fool or you can almost see the kernels of the energy of in Nadine where he takes the Richard Russo book mm -hmm. and like really captures this like beautiful kind of casual energy mm -hmm. in nobody's fool. And it's here in Nadine. I mean, it's a really, this is a really lovely, like you said, a trifle. I mean, yeah, you know, it's Connor, a very simple. Yeah. It's a very simple little story that you simple, know, that, yeah. that centers around some, you know, some criminal activity and some possibly um, uh, racy photographs that you know right. are in an envelope somewhere, and a and a, and a photographer played by Jerry Stiller who claims to have you know be a personal friend of Hugh Hefner, and <laughs> um, but really what it's about, it's a comedy of marriage, right? It's it's yeah. Kim Basinger and Jeff Bridges are into the late fifties, and they're a married couple who are already you know, separated by the time the movie begins and he just wants her to sign divorce papers and she wants something in it for her. And, um, and, but of course we understand pretty early on because they're both so goddamn charming that they belong together. And right. so it takes about 80 minutes for them to figure that out. Right. Um, and that's really what it is. And it's, um, and you know, and there's a bunch of, you know, caperish stuff, including a, a, a really, you know, very uh, a rip torn in a very rip torn kind oh, of performance. Oh, sure. Yeah. You're, getting full, and... you're getting full rip. You're getting full rip in this one. Full rip. And um, and I, I, the the thing that was most gratifying to me, watching it uh, this time, because I I am always very leery about watching stuff that I loved before I was say sure. 25. Sure. Yeah. You know, because I'm like, is it going to be as good as I remember? You know, my tastes right. hadn't really formed yet. Yeah, so rarely and, it is. Um, right? And and usually I find that I'm 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 I. Uh, my tastes were were right. You know? Oh, that's good. Oh, really? <laughs> and I, oh, okay. and I was, I was, and it maybe just because I pick and choose my rewatches carefully. But um, yeah, we call that we call that in our generation the hook dilemma. <laughs> the uh, great, the great hook dilemma. Yeah, nostalgia for doesn't the... need anything to me. Like I don't have a nostalgia for things. I just have good. Uh, good for you. I'm just, I'm just cautious about rewatching them because I, I would prefer to remember the movie. Yeah. Sure, smart. as being as yeah. being uh, good and and not spoil it by by treating my adult tastes to it again. Yeah, um, but Nadine played out very well for me. It was it, it was perhaps even lighter than I remembered, but um, but still just delightfully so. And I think the three main performance 
straight main performances are fantastic. Um, and it has, and it has that, that thing that I associate with Sam, which is simplicity and rightness, right? Like it's just everything. I'm, I'm, my eye is always where my brain would want it to be. And, um, I'm always looking at the character who I feel like I most want to be seeing at that moment. And, um, and it's breezy and, uh, and, and it's very simple. Um, in terms of its aesthetic, do you do you think it's so interesting? Because, it, like you're saying, it, so much so much of the simplicity can come from on set. And I was and I was asking, we asked Wayne Wang this, right, Connor, about like because he made this. Um, what was his Ozu movie, Connor? His like second movie, which is so good. Eat a bowl uh, of tea. Is that eat, the one? No, it was before that. Anyway, oh, dim sum, dim sum, which yeah. is such a lovely movie. Yeah. You know, it, it's very Ozu. He said openly he's trying to make an Ozu movie, and it's like just sitting on these beautiful frames. And I asked him, and I'm just curious from an editorial point of view, like, is it just like the right lens that makes a great frame? Is it like just, it's so many, I guess, so many different things. I mean, a lens is a big part of it. The right lens is important, but I don't think it's the only thing. It's I mean, just so we're, interesting because it's like so hard to do. It's like, it's like disarmingly, like I talk about like Woody Allen, right, famously is is one of the great you know living in a master all these things are happening like and you just feel like the frame is like evolving while you're watching the movie it's kind of incredible right and it's like he's not right. the only one of course like spielberg's great i mean there's you know and na name a name a great director you know a great director and you can find that but like max awful's you know uh, right right right, right, right yeah right you know john i mean you know the rules of the game is literally you know it's like but like but I just, I am, I'm endlessly fascinated and I like to think I know something about movies. And even still, when I watch movies, Nadine, like you said, a smaller, funny movie, there are like scenes in his bar where he's talking to the guy who like is working for him and hasn't been paid where it's just not cutting. And you feel like you're getting like double the information that you would get from a normal, you know, wide shot in mm -hmm. another movie, right? Like the phone is in the right place. The dialogue is the right thing. They're moving. I mean, it's everything. I guess it's just every, the answer is, I well, guess it's just, you know, it's, yeah, it's an alchemy. It's just all um, of it. Right. You know, and I think, you know, one of the things that, that Friedkin always said was, um, he, that he tried to, you know, his secret to directing actors was to hire actors who he didn't need to direct very much. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and he would, and he would do most of his work with them prior to shooting. Like he would sit and have a private meeting with each actor and really go through the character's history and go through the, go through the actor's history. Like right. learn, he said he loved Tommy Lee because of this. Tommy Lee Jones, he loved him because of that. Right. Yeah. And so he would, he really basically did most of the work that he needed to do with the actors well before shooting began. And so when he's on set, he can pay attention to other things, right? He doesn't want to have to be worry about getting yeah. a performance from an actor. He wants them to show up with the performance so that he can be paying attention to other things. Um, and then, you know, if he needs to, if he needs to step in, he will, but you know, that he, he never got too happy when he was, you know, like discovering, uh, having, helping someone well, discover when he, when something. When he had to set. help the actor yeah, find yeah, a performance, yeah. you know, that was, that was when things would get unpleasant on set, you know, um, because like on Kane Mutiny, he would look at his monitors and he would be like, get that, get that notepad out of the way. You know, like it's, it's too close to the center of the frame that penny and then, and all the, and, and no white, you know, everything had to be Brown. All the paper had to be like, you know, light Brown or darker, you know, all the books, everything, because anything that distracts the eye, these are the things that, that 
all of these things contribute to how where your eye falls in the frame and that is a huge part of 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 what makes the dramatic experience work is 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 it really is eye trace and yeah and that's knowing and 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 being and, and just having the confidence to to guide the the viewer's eye to the right place and that comes through choice of framing and then for editors it's about really capitalizing on the way the frames have been set up to um to keep the audience um engaged and paying attention to the right things yeah uh it's so great it's go sorry Connie, no go i just because it's you mentioned like you know being able to live on a master and and you mentioned before darren how like that just ties back into trusting performances to carry you through a shot and stuff like that and there's a scene in this in nadine where and i guess it'll i'll get a little spoilery but um where uh kim basinger and jeff bridges have had sex in his like trailer or oh, whatever God, and, so good. and yeah. jeff glenn bridges Headley. has been yeah. seeing glenn headley who's great in the movie oh, she, she really she shows up it's it's I, for my money this is like one of the funniest scenes in the movie um she shows up and obviously right. bridges like you know they're like in bed they were sleeping and bridges like shoots out of bed and goes to the this door is straight out of preston sturges yeah. oh, it's, oh. it's, it's yeah, absolutely yeah, it's immaculate and like it, what's beautiful though is, so you're looking. I'm, I'm for the listener. I will try and describe this as well as I can. But you're basically looking down the trailer. You can see the yeah. curtain that leads to the bedroom that is closed. Right, Bridges closes it, and Glenn Headley and Bridges are in the kitchen. Right, and then while they're talking, while this is happening, Glenn Headley like just slightly turns around, and Kim Basinger pokes her head through the curtain, and like the choice to not immediately cut to that, right? Like the choice to mm -hmm. just like let that happen and let you absorb the whole frame. And to your point, Darren, like knowing as an editor where someone's eye is going to go mm -hmm. um, is so crucial. And it's such a beautifully composed scene, both the way it's right. shot, the way it's cut, because it's just you're sitting there and you're like, ah, like it's it's a beautiful piece of tension. Um it's so funny because you don't cut. Yes, exactly. And and and, and, and who knows if he even made the close-up? Maybe he did. And and Sam said, no, it's funnier if you don't use it. I've, right. I've certainly been in a situation where I've been cutting comedies, and I've got producers who want the cut to be right, the, the thing that cut. tells the right. audience that, that it's the punchline. Yeah. And I'm like, to me, you've just gone from like really telling an elegant joke and delivering the punchline honestly to like holding the air horn and, yeah. and blowing it while you do the punchline. You're right? giving well, the audience a laugh track, basically. Well, exactly. So yeah. sometimes yeah. just sometimes th that choice not to cut and, you know, who knows? He actually said, um, I, I mentioned before that Sam was on set for all of his movies. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Um, Arlene Donovan, the, the, the producer on Nadine, says that um, Sam saved them about a million dollars on that film. <laughs> now, that, probably an exaggeration, but... Um, but she, he saved them a lot of money because he kept them from shooting things they didn't need. They didn't need. And yeah. sometimes, wow. you know, I mean, he was in a really rare position to be able to be on set and just say, you know what? Don't even bother with that close. Well, and he also, we should say, I didn't mention this before. He directed, I mean, right. you know, Sam directed Sparkle, the original Sparkle yep. with, uh, Irene Cara and, mm. um, and Len, you know, Lynette McKee and, um, Tubbs, what's his name? Philip uh, Michael Thomas. Yeah, from, uh, Philip Michael Thomas. Yep, yeah, from from Miami, from Miami Vice. Vice. 
and he directed and you know that's that sparkles is a, is, a, is a good musical drama his maureen stapleton charles durning that movie which i watched the, these, these two these two movies which i think are the first two movies he directed um um which i'll get the title for in a second um i think it's queen of the something ballroom um just a lovely movie i have to yeah. say stapleton it's like half of a musical stapleton's amazing anyway um but I just wanted to mention, because we're talking about comedies, you know, there's a lot of what you're talking about, Darren, and obviously, correct me, in uh, in movies that you you worked on, uh, The Lovers comes to mind, right, mm-hmm. with uh, with Deborah Winger and Tracy yeah. Letts, who obviously wrote uh, Bug, and you must have yeah. talked about that, Tracy, Bug and Killer Joe. Tracy Jones. took that movie, he goes, he said, Darren was the only person on this picture I even knew before. That's so funny. Because <laughs> he, he had never, I mean, other than Deborah Winger, but like he had never... Um, uh, he had never heard of Aza or anything. Sure. Like he, right. he, sure. he wasn't part of his world, and so uh, I'm not saying that my my involvement in the movie is what turned the tide for him. I think he there were some really good reasons why he wanted to take that movie, but um, but yeah, it was. It, and, and at that point, I didn't even realize that he had gone back to acting because he had just kind of been a writer. Right. For he had some, not yeah. been doing. I it for knew a while. that he had done some some acting early on. Sure. But thought that he'd kind of left it behind, and then and then he came up in conversation to. But to that's jump a great. That the lovers is a great example you're talking about where it is it's a comedy but it's very much like we're living on moments and we're mm-hmm. getting a lot in in our frames and it's like really just relying on the brilliance of you know of a Deborah Winger right of of a, of a Tracy Let's to really kind of like you're not cutting to like you know a knowing glance that's going right. to be like, ah, yeah, I get right. it. It's, you know, it's like, about you know, often sust- you're not doing that. It's about yeah, sustaining I, the emotion rather than like releasing it with an edit, yeah, right? Yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, I think in general editing can really set the tone of a comedy and obviously the choices that you make as an editor, um, really, uh, can create a, a world in which you're emphasizing a humorous, you know, sure. view of events. But I think once you start using cuts to help jokes, then you're, you, you've already gotten desperate. You yeah. know, like it's, you're, you're at that point, you're, you're really just kind of, um, uh, trying to put a shine on something that maybe doesn't even deserve it. Right. Um, and so, and, and, and what's too bad is when sometimes you, you, you don't have, you, you don't even have to do it. Like you could make the humor work without the cuts, but there there are forces at work, <laughs> which are larger than us, which sometimes want those cuts because that's the only way they understand the joke. And have sometimes- you have you found in your experience, obviously without naming names, of like perfect is the enemy of good situations where a director would will be like, no, there was a mistake on this take, we need to cut, and you're Fighting like, no, 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 you don't time. get it, like the mistake doesn't matter. Time. Yeah, sometimes I sometimes I find that um, the the biggest not fights, but the the sure. the most like uh, convince. I have to I have to convince directors that a scene is worthy of because it may not not turned out the way they want. It may not even be doing the thing that they intended for the scene to do. But I have to try to convince them that it's valuable to the like movie in some else. way that they're not right. even thinking about, um, or that yeah. it's better than than they imagine. Um, uh, I I had one. There's one film in in, in my in my filmography where the director, it, it's a movie about this one character, this one woman, and the director so hated the lead performance that he says that a few days into shooting, he began trying to 
think of a way to rewrite the film so that she wasn't in it anymore. I'm like, what are you even talking about? The entire <laughs> movie is about this character. And he goes, her performance was so bad, I had to think of something. I'm like, her performance is not bad. It's just not the performance that you had in your, you head, in your head when you right. wrote it. But it's actually a very good performance. Right. And it took him so long to come around to that view. Like he had to really get good reviews from everybody, you know, before he really, I mean, That's at some point he, he, yeah. he decided to trust me because he didn't really have a choice. Sure. And, you know, he had the footage that he had and we had to make that performance work. And I, and I thought that the performance didn't need a lot of TLC from me. Um, but what, what, re, what, who really did need the TLC was him. He needed yeah. To, yeah. He, he yeah. needed to be brought around to understand that he actually had something really good here, but right. because it wasn't what he had conceived when he wrote it and when he imagined himself directing it, um, that he needed to get past that and get to, you know, what he had. Yeah, that stuff's so fascinating where it's like, you you can really go in all these different mirror directions. Like a common thing, obviously, that you'll run into with, if, you, if you're reading somebody's script, for example, of like, you know, people can write a script and like, in their head, they know everything and they know the world building and then they write it and like, you read it and have to tell them like, I didn't really understand, like, you have it here, but you're not putting it here. So it can go that way too, right? Where it's like, no, 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 you get it. You get it. Like, I get it. We all get it. Like, you you see what I see. And it's like, that's obviously, obviously often not the case. Or it can go the other way where it becomes like, you're not seeing what you have, right? And I think it's just so interesting. You have to be almost like armchair psychology. You have to almost be like, no, <laughs> you, you get like, it's okay. Walter Murch um, writes in his book, In the Blink of an Eye, about Right, Fred which is Zinneman. a great, yeah, that's a great book, yeah. Um, Fred Zinneman um, would, all, a, a, after he would shoot a movie, he would go away for at least two weeks, which is an editor's dream, you know, yeah. um, to be given two weeks to really put together their first cut. And what Zinneman would do is he would go climb mountains. He would go climb mountains, you know, probably in the Alps somewhere because he needed to do something um, dangerous to his person. Like he needed to do something where he put his own life in some sort of risk to basically flush his mind of all the experiences of whatever bullshit went down on set Seriously. and in the production oh of the God. movie. Um, and there's nothing like, you know, putting that into perspective, like, you know, climbing a, you know, a yeah. 4,000 foot, you know, block. Well, that's, and, yeah. and, and so that when he came to the editing room, that was all a distant memory now. Yeah. 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 And he really could just look at the footage that he had, look at the film that he had and, and not be thinking about what it took to make it. Um, and now have your, your head yeah, totally have a clean in the slate, process yeah. of, of editing. You know? Well, and that's why I'll never, I mean, I have so much respect and I'll never understand the Soderbergs of the world who like shoot, get home, cut it. I just, I don't even get how like you can even, I don't know. I think what's interesting is like, which I don't think a lot of people speak to or even think about when they think about editing, which I'm glad you brought up with like Sam Osteen, Darren, like the being there on set is like a whole nother aspect yeah. to it right because like again i mean yeah not only like you said are there like production implications to it but there's you're also getting perspective on performance on you know on how someone 
Oh, she, oh, she didn't like that take. Yes, right, like, right, like, exactly. Like exactly. I shouldn't use that take. Yeah, she, yeah. Like, you know, or maybe whatever, I right. shouldn't. And to your point, Darren, that's just a thing where an editor can see, like, oh, that. No, that's the thing. I mean, that would be a she problem. Right, you know, to have that. So and so doesn't take yeah, the. Yeah. So and so doesn't right. know that take is good, right? Like, kind of thing. Right. Um, but it's just like an interesting thing to watch too, specifically with something like Nadine, where like, it it's so crucial. I mean, like, even comparing this to something, um, like straight time right or day of the dolphin right day of the dolphin obviously less so but but movies that like are born and, and thrive on tension and and conflict right which obviously comedy does too but this thing of you mentioned that it's breezy earlier and i think when people think of breezy they might just think of like the runtime it's very short right it's like 80 it is short like, 3 3 yeah, minutes like long minutes, so yeah. so it is sure breezy in that regard but it's there's like breath to this movie yeah. which is i think so there's like room to breathe room for breeze right like that's like i feel like what makes it work so well airy is almost yes. a better word yes. you know like yeah. it, it has it, it's it's a souffle of yes. a movie yes. <laughs> like it's light. it really yeah. is it is well, it's, that, like, it's that kind of breezy yeah I, I i tend to appreciate movies without b plots generally and i yeah. think it's very rare and this doesn't really have one and i like that you know where and, it's just like this is the story right like there's not right. a cutaway to the mom trying to make a deal with the thing and the whatever right and i think I always appreciate that. And we should say we're not talking about Breezy, Clint Eastwood's super <laughs> underrated third directorial movie, which I love deeply. Um, we should, okay. Everybody should go see William Holden. Um, but yeah, Nadine, I'm so glad you had us watch this because I had not seen it. And I think it was the one Benton I hadn't seen. So that was, it was lovely to like be, not, not surprised, but like just, you know, what chemistry. That's like yeah. another thing. Bridges, we talked about this, Connor, with like, like there are other actors like this, but it strikes me that Bridges is maybe somebody who just has good chemistry with he can everybody. Mine, yeah, he can mine yeah. chemistry. He's like one yeah. of those guys who's just like, well, he'll no. I mean, you can cast whoever you want. He'll find chemistry, right? He can yeah. just kind of manufacture it, which is not obviously like not everybody can do it, right? I mean, like we talk about, like like see many, you know, we love them, but like see many Tom Cruise movies. Like God bless him, but like right. a chemistry machine. He is not right. Like Bridges somehow has that ability, but um, so yeah. I mean, so Nadine happens, underwhelms. Unfortunately, Sam keeps working, and only two years later, our final movie. Um, really, you know, interesting movie. Speaking of of the moment, um, a lot of movies um made about apartheid during this time. In different ways, things like Serafina a couple years after this, things like Cry Freedom, the Richard Attenborough movie a couple years before this. Um, this is a dry white season. Um, the Eugene Palsy movie, uh, which was co-written by her and Colin Welland, based on um, the Andre Brink novel, um, who is an Afrikaner novelist. And it's Donald Sutherland, Jürgen Prochnow, Zakes uh, Moke, and then somewhat famously, not some, I mean, pretty famously, Marlon Brando came out of retirement to be in this film <laughs> for essentially, you know, what is it, 10, it's like three scenes, right? It's yeah. like- Good yeah. scenes, though. Really good. good. Three got scenes. A, got the an Oscar nom. The movie. Yeah. yeah, got an Oscar nom, deservedly Oscar comes in. You know, bats bats four hundred walks out. Um, Sarandon obviously very progressive in her, 
you know, um, in her, uh, in her, in her, her real life. Uh, similarly, her and Sutherland both kind of very liberal forces at the time. Very, you know, obviously at the front lines of of, of these issues. Took huge pay cuts to make the movie. It was it was a really low budget movie. And um, is one of these movies that like is really good. And I think it's it's kind of it's weird, you know. Cry Freedom got a lot of heat, justifiably because it kind of does the thing of it's the um, it's the Steve Biku story, but like told through the lens of the white Kevin Klein character, right? To the point where like you know Biku sadly is murdered, assassinated. You know if you know the, the tragic yeah. story of of the of of, of Stephen Biku um, halfway through the movie. Right. And so the, the back half of Cry Freedom, which is not a bad movie, is just Klein trying to get out of South Africa. So it really becomes this like totally different movie to the point where you're kind of like, that's not why we came here. You know, but it's right. This is the time of selling a movie that way, what have you. And um, and even Serafina, which is, you know, Whoopi Goldberg's, you know, you know, she, you know, agreed to be in Sister Act Two so she could make this movie. Right. Like, so there's a lot. And in a lot of ways, it's actually very similar uh, to A Dry White Season. And it's kind of about the children in so many ways. You know, even that movie, they're really leaning into these kind of like whoopee first elements, these musical elements, these comedic kind of bookends, not to the movie itself, but to certain scenes, um, you know, to soften it. And I think even though you have the Sutherland and the Brando characters and Sarandon to a lesser degree kind of doing some of that that's not really what's happening in this movie right like this is a movie where palsy has like a great it's such a confident it's her second feature film it's such a confident second feature and i think she does such a great job of like you know ben detoit is sutherland right and he's a school teacher and his gardener gordon winston um and shona is like get he gets he gets beaten. His son. Well, his gets, son. His son gets. Well, the son. Well, sorry. Yeah. The son. Gordon. Gordon. The gardener's Gordon. His son Jonathan gets beaten. Gets really like like whipped. Gets lashed. Yeah, canes, right. And yeah. then it's just the thing about they tell they tell uh, uh, Detroit. He basically kind of brushes it off. And then there are protests happening that are peaceful protests. And then uh, children are murdered, and Jonathan goes missing. Right. And then it so it becomes this what happened to this kid. We kind of quickly learn what happened. And then as Sutherland gets more involved, his eyes get more open. He brings in Ian McKenzie, who's this kind of more liberal attorney, you know, in the region, right? In this, you know, apartheid South America, uh, South Africa. And you, you just get a firsthand look at this kind of Kafka, you know, kangaroo court that, you know, was very, I mean, look, was happening obviously in real life at the time, and um, you know, yeah, Jurgen now kind of represents that in so many ways, and it's just it's like basically about the act, kind of the um, the the Sutherland character being activated finally by this, while while um, uh, Zach McKay is Stanley, who really is who's becomes, great in this movie. He's amazing, yeah, and he he's one of those actors who. You know, he did win an Emmy a few years before this, and he is great, or was great, I should say. And, like, never really – it's kind of like you wish – he was in so – you know, he's in 
he was in Oz. He was in, you know, stuff like Waterworld. You know what I mean? Like he's mm. in like, um, you know, stuff like he's in funny enough. He's in cry freedom. Um, and you know, but he never really had the big Hollywood movie, but he's incredible here. And, um, Sarandon is like a journalist. Her, her, she's probably the weakest element of this movie in, in as much as like, what are you doing here? Yeah. The accent's not great. Look, this look, the South African accents. I mean, yeah, it's, that, that's, it's a tough yeah. one. To, it's a really tough one to wrangle. So like, hopefully not really there, but, yeah. um, but I don't know it well enough to really, yeah, I like the movie. I'd never seen it before. I was okay. Oh, cool. It it's, oh, good. it's one okay. that I, it's one that I long, it's the only one, uh, of the four that we're talking about today that I hadn't seen before. Okay, cool. And it's, and it's not the kind of movie I tend to gravitate to sure. it does have and it does have its own white savior issues i mean it, it does it does sutherland is, is sutherland is really the, the 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 main character for sure um and and his his transformation is is really the the the, the central character drama that the movie is concerned with even though it was directed written and directed by a black woman she, she i guess she knew what the story was and what it was going to take to get a movie made about mm. about uh apartheid. yeah i think she does a good job of like knowing what the Breaking score the is but subverting yeah. it as much as she can to some exactly yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 um and so while i tend not to go to like um pretty earnest sure docudrama you know ripped from the headlines kind of oscar Beatty type movies um i did find myself really compelled in this one for a lot of reasons um and and you know the 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 black characters the African, the African characters, as opposed to the Afrikaans characters, sure, um, really were um, super compelling. And I forget the name of the guy who sort of comes around after uh, both Gordon and his son have, you know, spoiler. That's Stanley. He, that's that's Zakes Stanley. McKay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he, yeah. I thought he was great. Mm. Um, interestingly, Osteen was. This is a movie that Osteen was called in to fix. So they had. A, they right. The, I was going to ask you about this. Yeah. Yeah. So there was the, the, they. Um, Halsey had been working with. I think it's Glenn Cunningham. I'm seeing here. Uh, was, was was the editor originally? That's what I'm seeing here. But you tell me. Oh no no, uh, no. Glenn Cunningham yeah. was 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 Sam's assistant. Oh, so maybe they maybe mm -hmm. that credit they the, got the, taken was, off. It was then. a different editor before Sam came okay, on. Okay, got it. Got as far it. as okay. I know, was no longer credited on the film. Okay, there you go. Um, and and he he does he does refer refer to her as she. So I'm, I'm it was a woman editor, and I and 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 the, the woman who had who had cut. Yujin's first film was a French editor who went way back. She had cut 400 blows and obviously had great credits. Um, I don't know if that's the person who was on this one. Um, but, Sugarcane Alley, her first film, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but Sam said that when, you know, they sent him a tape. You know, he got a, he got a call from Paula Weinstein and, and the other producer and said, you know, we're in trouble. We need help. Um, can you take a look at our movie? He said he looked at the tape and he goes, I don't know what it was, but it wasn't a movie. Oh, no. Uh, and he 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 really felt like they were way like that they really needed help. So it, this was a situation where he went back in. He had them put take literally take apart the cut and put everything back into dailies, and he started over. Wow. Um, and he watched all the footage, and he and he recut it from the get go, and and made a number of structural changes to how how it worked and all of that. So uh, he doesn't go into a lot of detail in the book about exactly how he had to reconceive it. The, um, apparently the opening, the only detail he includes is that the, the opening main title, um, which is just, um, uh, uh, Donald Sutherland's little boy and yeah. 
the first yeah. little boy who's, who's injured, um, are just sort of playing They're soccer. They're playing soccer, yeah. That wasn't even originally part of the movie. They were really just doing that, and someone oh. woke on it, and he and, and had never even been used in the initial footage, in the initial film, and he um, found that and just decided to use it as the main title to sort of set the themes of the film. Um, other really than that, it's, yeah. it, I, I just don't know what it is that um, specifically that, that he had to do, but uh, apparently the producers were uh, much, much happier. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, and, then, and he did work with Yuzhan. It wasn't like the film had been taken away from her. Right. No. And, and part of the task in that situation, of course, is to continue to make the director happy um, while also bringing them around to um, seeing how what they were doing before wasn't working. Sure, sure. sure. Um, and, and, that, and that can sometimes be a very difficult position to be in, which is why um, a certain amount of um, diplomacy and, and people Finesse. skills are, are really important for an editor. Sure. Um, uh, you so have true. to kind of be a, a psychologist and a doting grandparent and like <laughs> a, a drill sergeant all at the same time, you know? Well, the, well look, the I mean, nowadays the the... The dream and the nightmare of the, uh, you know, the email. It's like, hi, all. Great first cut. Few notes, you know, and then colon, you know, da, 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 bullet point, bullet point. And then it's just like the the reading of the, uh, the yeah, you yeah. know, the, the, we all, we all know the, the pain of that. So, yeah. um, so we'll never know probably um, what it looked like before Sam took it over. Um, and, um, and exactly what he did, you know, it's impossible to, as we've said before, right. to really analyze an editor's work because so much of, of what we do involves making choices from among options that the audience will never know about. So, um, there's just no, there's just no way to know. He did, um, at the end, I guess he had to leave a little early and he left his assistant Glenn to, um, right. to make the, that's the co-credit I was talking about. Yeah. And he said that, um, he, he offered to, uh, share credit with his assistant and the assistant was really honored. And he's like, look, man, if, if people hate the movie, I can always just, I'll just think that you cut it. I can't even fix it. You know? <laughs> like Glenn ruined it. I had to help Glenn I, with it. It does make me, I obviously you hear something like that. I can't help but speculate, right? Like I have, I, I, this was the last one I watched and I watched it not too long before we're recording. So it's like fresh in my head. And well, there, he, yeah, he very, didn't make like, a lot of, he didn't edit a lot of movies like this. You no, know, that's and, it's, and he thing. makes yeah. like th- this among, certainly among the ones that we're talking like Silk about, there kind are, of, Silk kind of there like are like uh, distinct structural choices in terms of flashback and whatever. And so he uses like the courtroom sequence to his advantage in that regard, like where you'll see, you know, you see one angle, like one master of Gordon getting tortured. Right. But it's from behind. Right. And granted he is contorted in a way that is, you're like, it doesn't look comfortable. Yeah, yeah, right. You're like this is is you but already then they know. reveal the horror of it yeah, later it's an, in the film. It's, it's an right, interesting choice because I feel like it it seems to subvert what you would think would be the excellent choice he makes earlier in the movie, which is to not show it, right? Because right. he does he knows he knows you don't need that, right, as an editor. Um and and again, I don't know if it's his choice or whatever, I'm speculating here, but for the sake of argument, you know, it's an interesting thing to then deliberately go back on that choice, but choosing exactly when to do it. Right. So when in that scene, there's a guy who walks in 
And you just see his reaction to what's going on, which, again, makes the scene incredibly effective. Right. And then he immediately gets rushed out of the room. And later in the film, that man comes back to testify. And there's just the quickest flash of like, you know, Brando asks him, like, what, you know, what did you see or whatever? And there's just the quickest flash of like the reverse shot right yes. <laughs> of that scene and it's and it's horrifying it's horrifying but and not in a way it it doesn't feel gratuitous because it's so quick and it's it's such a beautiful edit in my opinion because it's it sir it gets in it gets out it serves its purpose and it's and it's brought back to maximum effect right like yeah it's a yeah, choice that, really, um really astute yeah and it it's fascinating because I think, you know, again, it's this, again, just an editor having to think about things thematically, right? Because he doesn't, you know, this doesn't get brought back at any other maybe more, um, let's say, like impressionistic choice. You know, it's not Sutherland thinking about it or imagining it where he chooses to use the shot like he uses it when it comes to actual testimony. Yeah, it's the facts. In, in, right? a, in yeah. a scene that is bringing it all up in an ugly right. and, and vicious way, right? And so, which is why it doesn't feel gratuitous, right? It doesn't feel s sensational or anything like that. But really, like, striking choices like that um, that, yeah, I didn't know about the re-edit, but I think that. Yeah, it's a it's a complete it's a complete doctor job, um, and they happen. I, I think he does mention something about doing a lot more intercutting between um, Soweto and the sort of posh suburban life that right. that, um, that, that, that Sutherland is living with his family, whereas those were probably longer stretches in each place. Yeah, he was intercutting them to highlight the contrast between the way people were living, you know, in different parts of South Africa. Um, uh, which probably helped. Um, but you know, that alone was not going to solve issues of narrative and coherence. So I'm sure there was, uh, there was a lot more that was going on there, but, um, uh, but it's, a, it's a very effective, it's a very effective movie. And, um, and, and again, especially for someone who would not normally kind of put on a, a rip from the headlines kind of docudrama, I, I found it, you know, pretty, pretty compelling. Yeah, it ha I mean, it ha bringing it back, it has a similar, a very different movie, but a similar speaking to pace and tension and what have you, you know, straight time, you know, you have the breaking point, you know, it kind of not ramps up, but becomes a different thing. There's a ticking clock element to what's happening. You get a little bit of that here where, you know, once Stanley becomes involved, once you start getting testimony, almost, almost after Ian McKenzie, the Marlon Brando character kind of comes and goes and you mm -hmm. get this very active Sutherland with the assist of Sarandon and even more kind of importantly, the assist of, you know, this guy Scanley, the Zakes McKay character, who's almost kind of like this like inner operative, right? Who, who, who kind of gets the last laugh in the film as mm -hmm. it were, or, you know, the last word. Um, the film, the film's pace picks up. And I think that really helps because I think you get, <clears throat> kind of at the moment you're resigned to just this like well this is terrible right, right. i'm watching a movie about a terrible sure. thing and i know it's terrible and they're telling me it's terrible it does become more exciting right, right. which you know it doesn't feel gratuitous it doesn't feel to me i mean it doesn't feel um exploitative right but it certainly becomes a more interesting th there's a thriller component that maintains th this largely you know this largely tragic you know, uh, 
energy that obviously holds through basically through the film, excuse me. And I think, yeah, it's a movie that stands out from other movies like it, I think. And I think it's yeah. nice that it's kind of been not rediscovered, but, you know, it kind of came and went, was was like handsomely received, respectfully, like, you know, obviously earned, earned an Oscar nomination or two, but like relatively underseen. So it's nice that it's gotten this kind of second life, not unlike straight time, honestly, in that way, too. Like, mm -hmm. you know, years later, you look back and you're like, you know, it's not just another one of these movies. Right. right? It's, there's it's, something, it's got, there's something else here yeah. that feels more honest or more you know, more effective or whatever, whatever it is. And I think it's interesting that, you know, Sam, you know, Osteen, you know, edited both those movies, and obviously among, you know, the, the to, to the point of, you know, to the theme of our podcast, these are lesser seen yeah. movies, but it's amazing how effective, you know, specifically these two dry white season and uh straight time, you know, decades later are in the grander scheme of his work. And like, and even like, look, I mean, <clears throat> with the directing, you know, to your point, you know, those movies maybe don't hold up the same way, but even to something like Sparkle, right? They remade Sparkle, right? Sparkle became this cultural touchstone amongst other films of that time, right? right? Not unlike The Wiz, not unlike Mahogany, right? Where like, you know, um, I like that's, I think there's something to be said for something like that. You know, yeah. he, he had, you know, an ability to kind of capture these things, you know, in, in the case of Sparkle as a director, but as an editor, really kind of like you are bottling, it is, you're capturing lightning in a bottle, like, and who, yeah. whose credit it is. I mean, certainly when it comes to editorial, that's always, I mean, to your point, it's never, you know, I always think, I mean, I, I don't know what your opinion is this as we kind of come to the end here, but like with like the awarding of editing, right? Thing. People always make the joke of like, often it's most editing, Right. Yeah, and no, I find exactly. do, you, do you do you think that's do you do you think that's true? Has there ever been a time something's been awarded where you're like, oh, you know what? That was like subtle compared to what normally or, or is it often just kind of you're seeing it on the screen and it's like pretty like in your face? And yeah, that's what... I think um, it's it's it, it does seem to be that that the awards tend to look at most cutting right yeah. most I mean, and, and and that's not to say that the movies that 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 get that recognition are badly edited i don't sure, think sure, sure. Think. but from among the well edited movies that we see every year the ones that get get those laurels are the ones where you are think find yourself thinking about the number of cameras right. that there's a lot going on involved. right 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 there's, there's a, a lot there, going on there's right. a lot of action like there are a lot of right. angles there's a lot of it just feels like there was a lot of work involved in editing them sure. and, that, and that becomes <laughs> apparent and um, not that there's anything wrong with that per se, right? But um, it's harder to recognize and really appreciate, um, you know, uh, what it takes to cut a diamond. I mean, I'm, and I'm speaking literally now about cutting a diamond, than it is to just like see something that has a lot of facets on it, you know? Right. Um, well, I mean, when, look, when, when, like... when to make something that uh, Brian Tyler said something really interesting because he's known for like these big operatic scores with mm -hmm. big, yes, 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 you know, orchestras yeah. and things like that. And we had worked with him on The Hunted, but then he we brought him in to do um, the score on Bug. And Billy wanted a very minimalist score on Bug. And Brian told me that he stayed up several nights in a row, like just all night, trying to figure out the math for right. these very simple little figures. They were little five-note figures that 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 that, that 
comprised the the whole score. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, he said that was the hardest composing he'd ever had to do was right. this Eric because you can't. There's nowhere to hide your mistakes. There's nowhere to hmm. hide a false impulse. You know, like it just it's everything is so exposed. And when you do when, in editing when you are trying to make as few cuts as possible and you're really trying to let camera and um and and performance carry the day without having to cut too much you at every turn you're encountering something that threatens to bring the whole house of cards down because there's a there's a technical issue there's you know um Whatever it is, there's there, there there's something that's going to give you away and make your simple approach either impossible, or um, or otherwise break the dynamic of the scene. And so it becomes when I when I have the opportunity to make lots and lots of cuts because that's what the style calls for. Um, everything gets a lot easier, right? Right. You know, in a lot of ways, you, you know, even if I have to put in an extra hour or two at the end of the day just because of the amount of work involved. Um, I uh, uh, I can hide everybody's mistakes much more easily if I'm you know if I'm working in a in, on a type of project that allows me to cut every three or four seconds. Right, um, it becomes fundamental at that point, right? Like exactly. it just becomes like like you know go cutting the coverage, like you said. It's like you know what, not that that's always a bad thing, right? It's like cutting to right, right. the moment. I mean, I think, you, you make yeah. the coverage for a reason, exactly. but you know sometimes it's there just to protect you in in the event of. Right. something going awry that you hope won't go awry you know sometimes and when you when you deny yourself that that i mean that's why it's called coverage it's yeah, like right, insurance. Right. yeah um, well that's the thing with thelma shoemaker what i always you don't have to i always love a shoemaker you know where it's like um you know somewhat famously the continuity in a lot of the scorsese movies is not you know is not great right but who right. cares right? right who could who could possibly give a shit right it's like it's funny to point out and like laugh about but it's like you know these are these are people who are smart enough to know that that it's like if the take and the frame where robert de niro is holding his hat in the wrong hand is the one where the performance is the best or you know the you know, That's the, the, you know you the focused is the sharpest or the zoom hit at the right thing or you know whatever the thing you want to say is then use that it's like the aviator which is like my i love that movie more than anybody in the world i love it it's my favorite one of my favorite favorite movies ever like there's a million you know, I've seen it so many times. There's a million cuts like that where you're like, his hat's on, his hat's off, his hat's on. But I, I, I could never care. I mean, it's like, it, you know, yeah. that thing is cut to perfection, in my opinion. Like, And I think, um, yeah, I just think it's fighting those right, knowing what the right battles are to fight, right? You know, that's that's Absolutely. what it's, you know. Well, The Hunted, you said, I mean, The Hunted is like a, the great example, in my opinion, of like, yeah, that's an action movie. It's just it's a it's literally a chase movie, but it's like there it is one long chase. Pretty it's much. one long yeah. chase, but it's there are so few cuts. I mean, when that chase scene where it becomes the tram becomes the bridge, right? Like you're, I mean, we're watching him climb. Like you're not like you know you're not cutting to you know to every single moment and avoiding things. And I just think you know, I marvel at that stuff. And rewatching that one specifically earlier in the year, I just was like struck by how rare that is now. Oh my God. And it's just such a, I don't know. One day we'll get, one day we'll get back to that. We'll, we'll, we'll have, we'll have, we'll have bigger I, I think bunch people, of movies that have that. I think people have a hard time. 
I think it's a patience like, thing nowadays well, a little I, bit. I, I think it's that, but I think it's also like I think I've it, it like the the problem with most of the more I mean everything about filmmaking is technical, right? But like I mean, the, you know the way most people use the term technical. The biggest problem with those disciplines, right, is that they're doing their best work when you, you're not thinking about it, right? Like when you're not seeing it, you're not hearing it, you're not, right? And I think, I think just, you know, you mentioned before about awarding like most editing. And I, I think that's why, right? Because it's like, they don't, you know, if you're not seeing it, it means someone like you did a great job, Darren, right? Like it's like if you're not necessarily thinking about right. it, like, uh, and the same goes for VFX. It's same goes for well, you know. look. I mean, the, and and the other big part of a, of of you know an editor's task is we have to fix people's mistakes. Mm-hmm. You know, like like it's one of it's it makes editing hard to talk about, especially in the promotion of a movie because right. you can't. You know, the, the, like you don't even know you what was in there. To an yeah. audience yeah. is that it was a work conceived and created by geniuses. <laughs> right, right. It was starred in by genius actors who showed up and gave one great performance. That it's performance that you see in the movie, and that's the way it has to be sold. Yeah. So as soon as you start talking about editing, you reveal the lies in all of that, right? Yeah. Um, and <laughs> you know, I mean, and and we take pride. Uh, right, right. we editors in making it seem like every actor, every director, every boom operator, every camera operator was doing the exact their best right work. Thing. Right, yeah. right, right. And, um, but it's, you know, it's not possible for all of those people to be doing their best work all oh. the time, but it, but it's certainly our task to make right. it look, to make it look that way. the powers <laughs> yeah. that we have, you know, to the degree that the footage will allow, make it look like all of these people were doing their best work at all times. And so, and the yeah, more we so kind of, you know, the more podcasts we go on and, <laughs> um, and, and, and destroy the illusion, the, yeah, break the, yeah. the more we drain, um, the movies of their essential magic. And so I'm, you know, sadly doing a little bit of that today. <laughs> no, I love, I, I have a producer friend. I remember at a festival or after a festival, I was having a drink with a producer friend and he, there was a movie and he was like. You know, everybody praised this one person's performance, and I know that it was a terrible performance. But yeah. we found the great, and I just remember yeah. him. He was so indignant about like ev- that's the thing everybody loves about this movie, and that was the worst part of it. And I just well, I'll you know, it's always funny remember that. I often find that the the performance that everybody is most worried about at the shooting right. stage and in the early cuts often winds up being the performance the, the yeah. most praised. Because you had to do so much work, you you spent so much of your time focusing on that one performance yeah. that you actually found some magic and brought it out that you couldn't actually see if you were on set. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I've been on TV shows where truly, like the most praised actor was the one that every editor was just pulling their hair out over because so the funny. performance was just so sloppy. Um, but you, but you, but then you stay, that's the one you stay up till two in the morning on. Right, you devote you know, yourself to it. Yeah. And, and, and really, you know, figuring out how to make it work. Um, yeah. so it's just, it just goes with the territory. Well, that's always, I mean, you know, we, 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 you know, I, it, that's the, to the, like to the Hoffman straight time having to not be a part of it. It's like, you know, Beatty, Warren Beatty's advice to Ben Affleck when he went to make Argo was like, when I started directing movies I was in, I forgot about, you know, me as an actor and he wouldn't he wouldn't he would cut corners on his performance and the coverage of his performance 
But anyway, because he just was like, no, I got it. I got it. Let me get the take. Okay. I got it. Let me direct. Right. And then in the, in the editing room would be like, we don't have another take of me saying it like that, like right. in this frame, because that was the corner he cut. Right. And so yeah. like just the advice of you can't, you can't let those things happen, you know? And it's, yeah, it's just, Hey, look, all that stuff. It's just so interesting. Um, well, so I guess before, as we come to the end of the Sam Osteen, you know, you know, appreciating his great work, are there any other films uh, Darren, that he had his hands on that you would just say, we covered Night Falls on Manhattan. Um, yeah. We actually we actually talked to Richard Dreyfuss, funny enough, uh, he about came on. Movie, yeah. yeah. And we yeah, talked to him about to it. I and love Richard Dreyfuss so much. Dreyfuss is great. He 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 had interesting things to say about working with Lumet. Um, really honest guy. I, I, we, I think we both, right, Connor, we really like Night Falls on Manhattan. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a good movie. I think that was one of Sam's last movies. Um, yeah. Are there any other kind of big ones that you would just I mean, say? Not, not, not really B-sides. I mean, when you sure, guys, whatever, named, yeah. like the ones that you pitched, I mean, when you, when you pitched this to me and I was like, it's Nadine and Straight Time are the ones I want to revisit. And yeah. then you guys picked the other two and, and yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. I'm glad you picked the two that you did. I mean, uh, Basically, most of his great work was with Polanski and Nichols. He did do Cool Hand Luke as well, which is, you know, great obviously movie. incredible. Yeah, Frantic uh, is a great Polanski movie, which I would I, say. Which I only actually saw for the first time earlier this year as well. Oh, really? I, I'd always heard it was not uh, one of Polanski's best. And so I was like, you know, enough of that. I'm going to just gonna sit down and watch it. What do you think? think um, I, I was listening to some other podcast and, and and they were talking about Frantic and I said, okay, it's time for me to finally watch this. And I actually really had a great time. I yeah, it was great. Frantic, yeah. we covered um, that on a on a Harrison Ford episode years ago. But um, yeah, that movie that I I would encourage anybody to watch it. I think yeah, absolutely. And um, I uh, and then of course you know among uh, Nichols and Polanski's films, I love. I mean, Carnal Knowledge is probably oh, my favorite. Nichols film, although I don't have a there almost isn't a Nichols film that I don't like other than possibly uh, Day of the Dolphin um, <laughs> and uh, Catch Twenty Two I love, and of course Chinatown is is one of my is right. You talked my, about that with is with probably Bobby. my go to yeah. favorite film ever. So yeah, yeah. it's yeah. a good. Now can I quickly? Yeah, what's your thought on the two Jakes? Gotta ask. Yeah, boy, I, I just I, I I've seen that twice now. I watched it again a few years ago. Uh, it doesn't quite work. Yeah. It, it's, yeah, you know, I really want interesting it. though, right? Kind of an interesting failure, right? Yeah, it, yeah, for sure, for <laughs> sure. Like it's worth it's worth watching for sure. Um, uh, and and may speak to why it's it's dangerous for actors to direct themselves. Sure, you know? that's a good point. Great point. There are very few who, who really point. pull it off. Um, uh, yeah, it's um, it was a nice try. I really wanted it to work. You know, yeah, great cast. Love Jennifer Tilly. There's that. You know what? There are. You get two Jakes. I, I don't mean Jennifer. <laughs> Look, I mean Meg Tilly. Meg but, Tilly. Um, yeah. 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 Um, Meg Tilly. Madeline. Oh, is Madeline Stowe right in her moment? Uh, right. Stowe. That, that's Stowe. You get a little Stowe. Know, like, but yeah, it just doesn't quite hold. Doesn't out. really. Yeah, it doesn't really congeal. Though I think an interesting curio for sure. Um. Yeah, Darren. Thanks so much for coming on and and, 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 and and you know spotlighting a guy. This is. I always say to Connor and to our list. I mean, these are the episodes where it's like. A guy like Sam was, you know, you know, how often do you get to talk about like, you know, the editor, the great editor of of these movies, right? It's you know, because like Doesn't you said, that's not the job, right? The job is right. to 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 make it great and kind of step away. And you know, we always joke when we're on set, the it's the sound the, that's the sound guy on set, right? The sound right. guy is like <laughs> is like, are we good? Okay, then. Do, uh, 
I don't want to hear about anything. Just <laughs> we're good. Are we good? Like, you know, like, and he has the most important job. Like you cannot fix sound. Right. And it's like, <laughs> but you don't even want to know. You're like, we're good. Right, Mike? I don't want to hear about it. Um, yeah, for sure. Editors yeah, are like the sound guys. Heroes, yeah. The editors and not are just, like. And not, and, and not even the recordists so much as the boom operators. Oh, yes. Well, I'm saying yeah. the, on the, yeah, the, yeah, those guys. the in the shit people, <laughs> you know. When they, yeah. when they get, and especially as an editor, man, when you get those, when you could just get those sweet, rich tracks, like oh. I just go and I like kiss the boom operator's feet. <laughs> I haven't actually ever literally done that, but, uh, but you know, the impulse is there, you know. Well, look, and I have to admit, I, as a, I'm, I'm mainly a producer. So like, I, I live in that world of like, like, you know, talking to directors where, you know, I'm like, we, it's a, we're good. It'll be fine. Like, you, you know, we got, yeah. we need to get yeah. having that conversation. They're like. You know, but it, and it becomes that, no, I want it to be better. And you have to kind of modulate that. Of course, okay. Yes or no, of course. And, you know, and I, I've lived both sides. And so I have a lot of respect for every angle, but it's like, I just love highlighting these crew elements because it's just so, that's to me the real shit. That's so interesting about all this stuff. And they're talking about the master. I mean, that to me is like, I could just spend a year just marveling at like, why did that work so well? Why, you know, like, why does a master work? Yeah. You know, or like just um, anything, any weird thing, you know, like that. So sure. I um, really appreciate you thank, taking the yeah, time. Thank you guys you. for having me on. Um, is there anything, I mean, anything, any, anything, anything in your you, world, any, yeah, any you want to plug yours, any got... plugging stuff? What do you got? Anything? I don't, you know, I I'm working on something now that, you know, probably won't see the light of day for at least another year or two. I'm working cool. on, you know, the strike uh, gave me an opportunity to work on a documentary. So I'm kind of, oh, cool. oh, wow neck deep in that for a while um you know i don't so everything that i've done uh is probably already out there you know like king mutiny yeah um, there is one show that i did for amc uh oh you know this was at the end of 2022 um that uh, that amc wanted being one of the projects they took as a write down Oh no! Um, or we're going to take as a write down, but the uh, the producers have been given the opportunity to shop it around. Shop it and last I heard, there was something promising on it. That show is called Damascus. It's great. Uh, it is not about the city in Syria. It is um, uh, it's sort of a sci-fi comedy about black identity, which is terrific. Um, and um, uh, so I won't say anything more about that. I do hope that it will. Find, find a home, a home. And yeah. be on be on people's screens next year. Um, other than that, no, nothing. But I'm I'm thankful thankful that you um, shouted out Colwell because I hope more people that. That's a movie I'm deeply proud of. Love that movie. And um, and uh, I hope that director Tom Quinn uh, uh, comes up with another idea soon because I loved working with him. So it's just always so nice when those small movies are just in kind of pitched perfect like that. You know, I think yeah. those Thank are the you. movies for me that are like. Um, you know, I mean, we joke about it on the podcast, but like a movie like that, where it's like a postal worker, you know, who's getting relocated or retiring. I'm like, oh my God, that is for me. Like, let me yeah. sit down and like yeah. really dive in. That's like made for me. So I love that movie deeply. Um, but, uh, but yeah, thank you. Um, uh, everybody watched the Kane Mutiny Court yes. Marshall. It's yeah. one of the best of the year, truly. Definitely. A lot of incredible performances and, uh. And Connor, I'll let you wrap us up. But no, but, just Darren, but, uh, thanks again. This is super insightful, and we don't like like we said at the top. We don't often get to talk about great people in great positions with 
great people in great positions, you know, uh, adding well, their expertise. You. It means a lot that you take an interest because actually it doesn't happen very often that people take an interest or have any idea how to talk about these things at all. So. <laughs> I, I'm a post supervisor by day, so I have a very it, like special invested interest in, very in, in everything. I've just, I haven't said much because I've just been loving <laughs> listening to you talk. So um, I, I really appreciate it. But uh, All right, you guys. But yeah, you uh, thank you for coming by. Um, this will be our last episode of the year. So happy new year to everybody. We will we will see you uh, in 2024, but uh, we'll have some some cool stuff coming up. We'll be doing um, some more audience choice episodes, one on Jodie Foster. So that'll be coming in the new year. Uh, hopefully we, we have a couple cool potential, really big interviews swirling around that may happen. Fingers crossed. Yeah, so Andrew, it, well, Andrew Davis will participate for this. That will have already happened. We will have spoken with the, uh, with the great Andrew <laughs> yeah, Davis. Andrew Davis, the great, um, the fugitive. But, but we have a couple other ones uh, potentially on the horizon that, that could be really cool. Um, and if they get, you know, if they don't happen, I'll cut this out. But, um, but yeah, so thank you for listening uh, to us this year. We will see you in the new year. If you like what you've heard, please rate, review, and subscribe. You can follow us on social media at TFS B-Side. And uh, yeah, everybody watch the Kane Mutiny Court Martial because uh, it is one of the best movies of the year. So uh, thank you so much again, Darren. And to you out there in the world, have a happy new year. And now you're listening to the B-Side.